0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to Office Hours. Great to have you here. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do on officehours.global. Our first hour, a general discussion of production and IT related topics where we answer audience submitted questions. So if you've been around the show for a while, you know how to do that. If not, Check it out. go uh, look at the website and it'll give you a pathway to get to where you can participate actively in the show. The second hour is typically a deeper dive into a topic. Today we're going to be talking about interviewing, particularly um, how to interview for sound bikes for programs, but we'll be talking about a lot of things. So this isn't interviewing for a job or something like that. It's actually conducting an on-camera interview with somebody so that you can get content for putting in your pro- your projects or programs. So that's all in the second hour, but we are in the first hour, which means it's time for our first. Question of the day. Mitch, what have you got? Thank you, Bill. Our first is in from
1: Bo Cordell in Charleston, South Carolina. Bo wants to know, I kn- Beau wants to know, isn't that funny? I know I can get multiple SDI feeds out of a Zoom meeting with Zoom ISO and a deck link. Is there a similarity el- similarly elegant solution to get
0: two to four SDI feeds into a Zoom meeting? And Guy punched in first, then Alex, take over. So, Guy, t- take it.
2: Yeah, with the regular Zoom client, you, you can bring in multiple cameras, but they're just going to be a single feed coming in one at a time. So you can switch cameras with the Zoom client. With Zoom rooms, it's going to cost you 49 bucks a month, but now you can enable something called uh, allow multi-camera mode. It'll actually send in multiple cameras. So you could bring in, if you have a decklink card or something similar, just four devices, doesn't matter if they're PTZ cameras, any UVC class client device will pop in and you uh, it'll actually come in as Zoom Room dash one, two dash three, four, all the way up to, let's see, maximum stream count it says is six. So you can bring in six feeds from one Zoom Room. It's gonna cost you again, but, and then if you need to get them across the, the way, like let's, let's say for instance, your SDI capture boxes somewhere else, there is something called NDI Connect, which will allow you to send those feeds over NDI Connect over to your Zoom Room and those will all appear. Excellent, Alex.
3: And Guy, can you mix and match those? So you can have some webcams and some uh, SDI feeds. So it's just, yeah, it's they're just c- any sources? They're just cameras, yeah, you just
2: pick them up. And it's just with any zoom room or does it have to be upgraded? That's just any zoom room, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I don't have my share screen enabled, but uh, yeah, in the back end it just says uh, allow, so you have to enable multi, allow, so there's a switch that says allow multi, multi-camera mode. And then from there, you say maximum stream count and then you you enable both those and then you can pick the cameras.
3: So theoretically, you could have two machines, two Zoom rooms supply 12
4: outputs.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Interesting.
4: That's all I got.
0: Okay. David Paskin had
4: another thought. Is there a hotkey or a way to switch cameras in vanilla Zoom? like from a Stream Deck or a hotkey or something like that, other than mousing over, clicking on the little carrot and choosing
2: your camera. Guy, since you're so knowledgeable about this, you have any thoughts? I'm not sure there's a button. I know you could have somebody do it remotely for you, though. You can uh, have somebody request camera control. And then when they press the little button, they can do it. So there's got to be a way to do it through some kind of API or something. I'm not sure though. I haven't done it.
0: Okay, well, hopefully that helps you. I think it's time to go on to the next question.
1: Douglas Carmichael is here. I've heard the ATEM black crush issue mentioned. When does that happen? I admit, you push your hand in for this. Douglas, every time. Uh, <laughs> basically what it is is that uh, uh, the ATEM, uh, instead of partial or full, it does full um, on its output, just a slightly restricted gamut. So you really need to have something like OBS uh, in there to, uh, to adjust the input. You can't set partial or full on Zoom. Uh, I'm sure there's a much more technical explanation for that, but
0: it's always going to do it. And maybe we'll get that from Alex. Alex,
3: yeah, it, it's it, it is a full partial. We think it's a full partial, and and one is, uh, we think the ATEM is sending full, and and Zoom is grabbing partial. I think is the is the, it's I think is the interpretation. Um, and uh, you can fix that in an ATEM because you have if you have camera control. So if you have a Blackmagic camera. Um, connected to your ATEM, you can just move the blacks <laughs> to where they need to be um, in the in the ATEM. If you if you have a non-black magic camera, it's more complicated.
0: I wonder if any part of that is because cameras used to send out at least in NTSC uh, a black level that was a little bit above the bottom of the pedestal. I think it used to be plus seven point five IRE or something like that. Was technical black back in the broadcast days, and some camcorders or cameras may be putting that out as opposed to the zero uh, black. I'm I'm not. Technical enough to be sure of that I just remember facing it a lot because the first time I got a digital camera, I was astonished that my blacks actually looked honestly black for maybe the first time in my career, and that didn't happen until the nineteen nineties, I think, or nineteen eighties. Um, let's oh, Mitch wants to weigh in. I think you're referring to the
1: uh, Japanese black level versus the NTSC uh, standard. 0. Yeah, 75.
0: and it changed when digital when all those digital cameras took over. Um, black levels of zero were common. And I had not seen that in my before. So the technology time changes. Let's go on to the next question. Dave Burke from Alexandria, Virginia.
1: Uh, Dave says, I have a shallow concrete sculpture. Uh, think of angels sculpted into the wall of a building. And I want to create a 3D scan detailed enough that others can replicate the sculpture on CNC machines. What's the best way to scan it? Alex is going to
3: help us here. Yeah, so I've done something similar. I've taken a build a 3D model of a relief. Uh, Here's a, here's this is um, actually from Bayan Temple in Wat, and this is not done with scanning, but with photogrammetry. So if you look at all of this, all of that detail there is in 3D, it's all a relief. I mean, even the fine little areas here, you can even see some here of some of the dots kind of breaking up there. So you can see kind of the density that we have here. Now this was done um, by taking photos of it. And so photogrammetry is probably the direction you wanna go when you want, Accuracy, you want structured light like LIDAR, and that's better for larger things and grabbing onto things. But when you want detail, uh, basically photogrammetry is whatever resolution you can get. So if you get closer to something, you, you can keep on just grabbing more and more detail because it's simply you know adding all of that back in. It doesn't care um, uh, where it is. Now, what I did here to do this is I took, I, I had center lines like this, that I that I worked around. And so on each one of these, I took a, a low camera, a medium camera, high camera in. So there was basically nine positions like this. And it's probably more like, like this many that went down there. And so I, I just kept on doing these kind of semicircles overlapping like this, to get the coverage that I needed. And I got pretty much every little piece of that relief um back um but with that photogrammetry of course i couldn't walk the next day because i was crouching over and over and over again all the way down this wall and which didn't seem like a big deal when i did it <laughs> but it was after doing that all day too many walls um it was uh it was truly painful <laughs> so anyway it was good good exercise You've heard so, the term um, suffering for your art this is yeah it. <laughs> yeah that was it so um anyway but you know anything smaller you, you can definitely get in an, i mean you can get the relief of a quarter that way um by getting just by getting closer up now the i shot this with a very old mark you know canon you know canon mark 5 something you know it's it wasn't 20 megapixel 24 megapixel um if i did it again i'd i take a sony um the a7r uh 3 or 4 that has 61 megapixels because the more megapixels definitely makes a big difference the things you want to work work on is can't change your focal length. so use a fixed lens or one that can be locked or tape it. Um, you also would prefer not to change your focus if you can avoid it because that actually changes the, the effective focal uh, the, the um, focal length a little bit. So when you want to stay focused there um, you want it to be as well lit and as closed down as possible to have the most depth of field. So if you can shoot the whole thing at f11 or F16, you know that's where you want to be and then just add enough light to get to that point. Um, because, uh, things going out of focus is not good for what you're doing. It's better to have more grain than, um, uh, than, uh, a, a wider aperture. So those are some of the, the real quick tips to doing that and uh, good luck. Let us know how it goes.
0: And Jason wants to weigh in on this. this Alex, hey n- yeah, Alex nailed most of it. Be
5: extremely methodical on your, um, on your acquisition, whatever the grid is, make sure that the grid is the same from the beginning to the end and, um, get flat light as flat as you possibly can get and make sure it doesn't change throughout, you know, the sculpture.
6: And Courtney. I was going to ask uh, Alex, you know, there are a lot of great ways to create a 3D model, but what we used to do is just do a bump map. Could you just light, since it's a flat wall of, you know, unified color, could you just light it at an oblique angle and just turn that into a bump map? Yeah, you can. How accurate would that be?
3: You convert it to a bump map or a displacement map, both of those would be doable. What I wanted to do while I was there was generate enough geometry to be able to derive those later. So so the idea would be that I can, um, and really what I want to do is, is, and, and I just haven't had time. I, a lot of times I'm traveling and I grab lots of data and I get to some some area until it turns into a job. I just, it just sits around in a, in a pot. Um, but really where I would go with this is to build a um, just a flat plane. If I want to do it in real time, let's say AR. Which is where this is designed for then what i would do is build this as a normal map you know so this would be a normal map um, that will perturb the normals a normal map is a much more advanced version of a map essentially i mean it's just simplifying it but um so so i would do that that way the plane would be relatively quick to to render um and then the normal map would bring most of the geometry or the apparent geometry back out but you can see you know down the sides here that this is really a um the geometry is there um, it, it there is something more real about it when you see it with the geometry. It means you can also scale. You know, I can scale up very easily all the way to the to these characters, and the normal map might fall apart at some point, whereas the geometry will keep going. And I can view this. This is. Um, I think that the end of this wall specifically was about two million polygons, and it worked uh, seamlessly on a uh, iPhone ten. <laughs> so so it's so, um, you know, at this point, I think we can we can throw four to six million polygons in without too much performance uh, impact. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's uh, 15 million points. Um, so that's probably about uh, so it might be a little bit bigger than that. It might be five, five million polygons, but it, it worked fine. Um, so to think about. nice. Time
1: to move on to the next question. David Paskin from Miami, Florida, and here on the panel Last, I'm looking to produce a number of shows in breakout rooms, but spotlighting doesn't work there. Any other options and or suggestions?
0: Nobody's weighed in on this one, and I'm not really that familiar with it. Uh, David, what, what are your specific questions? Oh, there we go, Alex and Guy both just popped in late. So Alex, you want to start?
3: David, are you trying to actually interact with folks
4: that are there, or are you just building a show? So the idea is that I know you're not a fan of concurrent uh, sessions, but there are going to be a couple of concurrent sessions. And rather than using Zoom events, I wanted to keep it really simple. Just have a meeting, send folks into the breakout rooms and then use Zoom OSC in a different Zoom OSC instance in each room to be able to spotlight or, you know, put, put the speaker on, on the stage as it were.
3: And do you want them to be able to interact with the folks that are there? Is that part of the, the model? Is, that is part is to, of the model. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. It would be, uh, you know, I think that we, we're, we're hoping that we see some, you know, advances in the way that things happen inside of meetings. Um, so I think that we're kind of looking for it currently. I mean, I don't really do a lot of the interaction with people directly in the in the meetings with what we do <laughs> so so for me everything is a build a breakout room build a show put put it back into another room and let people talk to them you know and and then then you get you know and um then you just you have more control over it i i, I don't there are definitely times you know like uh, if you're at a spiritual center or at some kind of thing where there's lots of discussion or there's lots of back and forth where it might make sense to have the meetings and have an open area. I would think about doing that at certain times as opposed to doing it during the presentation time and the Q and A time, so that you get a more dense experience for the folks that are watching and then you break into, you know, okay, now we're all gonna go somewhere and have a discussion that doesn't need to be spotlit. So if you want something to be spotlit, I would have it that show be a certain thing and have people submit questions via text um, you know, uh, there's a. I, I'm pretty sure that there's, there's one level of hell that is just people asking questions in an open mic that you just have to sit there and listen to. Um, so, so there, the, you know, and so the, um, uh, so I think that you know, getting text version questions that are that are voted on, that that people can you know go through your 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 content density is much higher, and then you can do um, a breakout afterwards where everyone's just you know open open form. I mean that that's how I would probably approach
4: that. David, you wanted to. Yeah. I guess what I'm trying to avoid though, is having to have multiple meetings and sending folks who are attending different sessions to multiple meetings. And yes, I know that zoom events is the answer to this question, but
3: I wouldn't do it with zoom events. I would do it with
4: meetings. I would just do it with breakout rooms.
3: I would give everybody the multiple meetings. I do them all in breakout rooms.
4: But how do I, how do you can't spotlight in a breakout room? So in I, I would pump a
3: video into, um, right. You can't spotlight
4: in a breakout room. Yeah. So I guess what I'm wondering is, right. How do I put that person as it were on stage in a breakout room, as opposed to just in a meeting? Yeah,
3: I guess the question
4: is, is does it matter if
3: they're the only ones with their camera on? Like, you know, if it, if you decided that, you know, you, if you set, you know, had everyone turn their cameras off so they, they can watch during this thing, you know, and then it would be the only one showing up. And you could, one of the things we're looking at, cause we have, we have a quiet room. And we're trying to keep it quiet, you know, for watching this show is having OSC just kind of sitting in there going, if you're not this person and you turn your stuff on, we're gonna turn it off. Just <laughs> like, like, no. you know. And so, so, um, so there's a, there's a couple of different ways that you can pro- you can kind of manage some of that. Jason has thought.
5: Um, yeah. Can't you just uh, on a two screen rig, can't you just pin them to the second screen and, and, you know, take that feed out?
4: You well, can, you could, but then when you feed that back in it, you're just feeding another camera I feed see. into a yeah, breakout. But I think yeah. you can,
3: I think if you pin, you can, can you, if you pin does it, and I haven't tried to do that in breakout rooms, it's just not a way we use them. So, yeah, I think There's that- There's some
0: if, exploration, yeah.
3: I think if you did some, wetware development which is just having people turn their cameras off for the show and then turn them all on at the end like say hey we're going to have an open discussion and we'll do first we're going to do general like you it's a really interesting question but i think that what you if i thought about this a little bit more i'd probably have a show tell everybody to turn their cameras off and their mics off and we're going to have a presentation we're going to take your questions via text and then at the end of the session we're going to have everyone turn their cameras on and we're going to have a discussion you know, and, and people can. If you want to bring other things up or talk through those things, um, we can we can do that. And I think that um, if you have a relatively managed crowd, that would probably be somewhat effective. If, 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 it, some if I, oh,
4: go ahead. If go I'm ahead, sorry, yeah. Bill, I just I know Guy wanted to. No, no, I just absolutely. wanted to say one of the reasons we're doing meetings versus webinar, where again, you, you have a lot more control for that is that the presenters want to be able to see the faces of the people they're speaking
2: ah, to. Okay. So it, it, but yeah, I, I hear
4: that solution. Guy,
0: you want to
2: weigh in? Yeah, there's different ways of pumping meetings in the webinars and, you know, screen, screen scraping and all that. But, but yeah, I think, the Zoom Events platform would probably be the best for you. And if you want to borrow one of my licenses, I have a Zoom Events 1,000 uh, license that I can let you use, and you can test it out and see if it works out for you.
0: Excellent,
3: uh, Alex. Another thought. Yeah, and um, as I've said before, my wife works on a at a meditation center where they, this is all they do, and they just do it in meetings. And the speakers speak, and people have their cameras on, and they just sit there and watch respectfully until they're done. And um, uh, so you know, it, 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 they do it. A lot of it has to do with uh, the moderator, you know, um, you know generating a space, you know, that, that has it, you know, giving people clear instruction on what they need to do um, and, and having them kind of go down that path. And, and if, the, if I think generally, if you're dealing with adults, you know, it, it, it works well. If you're dealing with uh, uh, young you know, teenagers or something, it might be a little bit more unruly, you know, so it just depends on, on, the, on the audience as well. And guys back in again.
2: One last thing that you might want to play with if you absolutely just want to push it this way is to uh, just screen share video. So uh, put, yeah, that'll force your bigger picture over the top.
3: You may get, a, and then you have to optimize it for video. And hopefully it'll, if you optimize that for video, it's a great idea. That would, that would probably solve a lot of it right there. Excellent. Well,
0: hopefully, David, you have a lot of suggestions here, and uh, definitely come back and let us know how things go when you get this running. Let's go to the next question. From Douglas Carmichael,
1: AI technologies like Respeecher can create a convincing lifelike speech from a profile of a person's vocal style. Could you see Respeecher or similar technology affecting the market for voice talent in 10 plus years? And Courtney's going to
6: start us off. Well, it can affect it right now. We don't have to wait 10 plus years because they already have automated robo-voices that are reading books and doing other things. And I think what would be a really interesting experiment would be to have our backend people, or, or for an hour or two, Josh, put this on the list, of uh, training re-speecher with Mitch's. We have plenty of samples of Mitch reading the questions and make the reader be a robo-Mitch. And uh, for one whole show, have Robomitch read all the questions. That would be interesting to see how far away we are from uh, this actually working commercially and can we fool the general public. I know right now there is, uh, we can already do it with faces. There are unique fa- real-time AI-based face generators that generate unique faces for use in advertising, etc. So that's displacing uh, um, you know uh, stock photography for uh, using in commercial advertisements because you don't have to pay royalties to these artificially generated faces. So uh, I don't think we're very far away from that uh, in the voice world.
0: Robo Mitch sounds like a TV show to me somehow. Uh, Next question. Uh, No, I'm sorry. We're going to uh, Mitch, Mitchell.
1: We're going to Robo Mitch. This is not really me. Uh, Courtney, thank you for that. The only thing I don't think it'll do well is the spectacular fails in my ability to read sometimes you'd have to teach it how to screw things up They're programmed uh, the in an like, <laughs> exactly but i you know i i welcome it i think it's an interesting thing to have and, and i think the most recent uh, publicly known uh, example of it is uh, james earl jones signing over his uh, um his voice basically to re-speecher and to Lucas Films and saying i'm not going to do it anymore but if re-speecher can do it then uh, that's fine and uh, in 10 years, yeah. And as Courtney says now, yes, because it's being done. And Alex.
3: I don't remember raising my hand. <laughs> so anyway, so um, the, uh, yeah, so I, you know, I think that um, we the 80s were a time in music where we thought we would replace everything with, uh, with computers. And I think that a lot of that stuff could be re-recorded with the real thing again, <laughs> so it would be it'd be nice, uh, you know. So so I think that um you know I think what happens is we get a surge, something new and shiny, and then we realize that there's something organic and and real about the real thing. And I think that we we have a hard time. Uh, we we want to go back to that somewhere. I think the more we become mechanic mechanized, the 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 more we look for things that are more analog.
0: I'm kind of on both sides of this. I can see circumstances where I want just the delivery of information and any kind of uh, robotic speech thing would be really good for that. If I'm just trying to absorb information, the fact that it could be fast or slow or whatever, and you don't have to take all that time to make it because it could just be generated. That's probably a good thing.
3: But on the other hand, no, go ahead. I, I agree with you that there's a lot of things that I don't that I don't see or read because I, you know, I can't. Listen to it. You know, I'm too busy. I, I, I once listened to a 192-page NASA report on. Um, it was like dream, dream something or other that that does it, that. I have it on my phone, and it, but the problem with it was all the. Problem with any scientific journal is all the little references. Like all, all the, the citations, actually, the, the kill citations it. just it just it was like the third of the of the thing with a citation. So having something that would intelligently go through and grab that and then read it out to me. Um, because we don't get a lot of magazines and and information that's out there because it's not an audio form. So having something turn that into audio, I think makes sense. And then but I think that we'll still find places that we want. You.
0: I be. had that experience recently. I was listening to a novel, and in the novel, there was a lot of emails. And this is one of the services on Audible that does every word in the book. So every time an email came through, they rolled, they read all the header information, all the right. to right. and from, and it was just like, whoa, okay. And so yeah. I had to. You know, speed it up a little bit just to get through all these header things before they got to that. That could be useful. On the other side of it though, uh, the nuance of human interpretation, it's like do you really need to speed read poetry? Are you really going to slow down and try to find the rhythm that the author is giving you? Because there's music in those words if they're performed well, to think, be musical
4: and, and so and I think
3: that I think that fiction and poetry are something that I want to listen to in real time I want a real person to read it in general um, I think that it's where when we get to nonfiction is usually where I I, I just want the protein concur
0: I think there's both sides of you had a last stop before we move on yeah, I think you're spot on there, Bill, and
1: your uh, your interpretation of what the subtleties that a reader, a live reader, brings to it. And we'll hear it, and it'll be correct in every possible way, but something about it won't be quite right. It's like the deep fake videos. They're very convincing, but something
0: about them isn't quite right. Yeah. It, it's in, It's interesting to watch the technology evolve, and let's see where it goes. Let's move on to the next question for right now. David Paskin, Miami,
1: Florida, and here on our panel, apparently if Zoom ISO is to be able to capture in a breakout room, capture should be enabled after joining the room rather than in the main room. Any ideas why permissions wouldn't be persistent across whole meetings, including breakout rooms?
0: And Alex is going to help us here. Alex?
3: I I think it has has to do with the fact that a lot of the breakout rooms... um, uh, you know they're they're just a collection of meetings. <laughs> so, but um, you know, so um, but I, I thought that 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 the permissions if you were made a co-host in one place or you're made it if you're able to do it you can I thought you could get it. I think we do that because it's easier because that's where the host is. I don't know if it's I don't think we need to do that. I think if someone gave you in a breakout room um, the the uh, permissions
4: you should be able to you should be able to do that.
0: David, go ahead. If you guys want to talk about it and follow
3: up. You may be
4: right. And it may have been a fluke. This actually came up from from Jeff Woodgren. He was on a job and he uh, uh, he could capture in the main room, but couldn't capture in the breakout room. He asked um, Andy about it. And Andy's response was to put the output engine in standby mode before entering the breakout room, then turn it on. So it could have been a fluke. But I was curious if we knew why it may not be persistent.
3: Well, if we're talking about the output engine, there, I don't think it has to do with the permissions. I think you just want the output engine to be off when you go into the room that you're starting. I think it. I think that that's. So I, I don't think that that had to do with permissions. I think that had to do with turning the o- output engine on because there's Right, a, I apologize. So, so I, I probably
4: that, phrased the question wrong. Yeah. Yeah, I
3: think that's the issue. So you know, so I, I, I was thinking about permissions, but yeah, it it could be something that it's jumping from essentially one meeting to a different meeting, and and that may be you know something that you're you're. That's kind of pushing the envelope on that one, um, but I think that generally I, I enter the meeting, and, and what happens for me is I don't. I I, I think you, it was run into because someone was doing something that was unusual, because usually I don't think about turning anything on until I get into the meeting that I'm in. So it's a, that would be an unusual behavior for me, so I probably just haven't seen it. All right, I think we've pretty much covered that. Let's move on to the next question.
1: Brian Carney in Wheaton, Illinois says, "I need to run HDMI feeds in a room over 100 feet." I've seen boxes that convert HDMI to CAT 6 at the source, and then convert back to HDMI at the monitor. Any particular brands you can recommend to av- or avoid? Jason's going to start us out here. Um,
5: so what you're talking about are Balins. Um, Balins or balans, depending upon where in the country you're from. Uh, I've had decent luck with um, Monoprice, but I, I would say you'd be better
1: served with um, using SDI if you can. Mitch? Fiber, anytime you can, go to fiber. It's conversion back and forth. It's not going to get
2: interfered with. Guy? And I know Alex isn't going to be a fan of this one, and a lot of people aren't, but I use them. They work. These are the uh, fiber HDMI cables. We used them all over at that Napa wedding. We used, like, uh, probably a dozen of these things, and we let them sit in the sun. Um, We had some 300-footers that worked. So this is the brand that I use, but I'm... uh, talking with Greg Gibson right now to get the brand that he used, but this one when I bought it back in July 5th of 2020 was like 300 bucks. So these things have come down in price dramatically. They're like a third of what they cost when they first come out. The thing to remember is that there is a display side and there is a source side. You want to make sure before you run the run, especially if you're gonna do it through walls that you get them in the the right order otherwise. You'll be turning it around, which we had to do at that event a couple of times. Uh, Ger- our friend Jeremy Horn you know, was not very happy with us when we told him those are backwards. <laughs> so, oh, ouch. Yeah. So they're unidirectional. You have to source and display. So whichever source is the in and the display is the out.
0: Makes sense. Courtney.
2: Uh, there is a
6: technology called uh, HD Base T. It's not uh, general networking, and it's not a BALEN like uh, Jason was talking about. It's, uh, it converts uh, HDMI signals to uh, a uh, digital signal that can be sent over regular CAT6 Ethernet cable. And it carries uh, not only HD video, but it can carry RS-232 commands, infrared remote commands, uh, Ethernet uh, or uh, Internet, and power all over a single Ethernet cable. So you might look into that. There's an alliance, and it's used by a lot of pro-AV uh, companies for distribution over long long distance, fairly long distances. Not as long as fiber, but uh, it'll get you over a uh, Cat6 uh, within a facility uh, easily.
0: Courtney, is there a brand or, or name people could search for if they're interested
6: in that? Just search for HD Base T, and it'll take you to the HDBT Alliance homepage. and. Uh, This is what it looks like and uh, you can find distributors uh, and people who manufacture compatible equipment there.
3: Excellent, thanks. Alex. Yeah and and I think that those the the fiber extenders um, work great Uh, and I've had them in the past. The problem has been is that I damaged them and I bought them when they were much more expensive and so uh, then I was like, "Oh, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'd rather just use Cat 5 <laughs> so, so the um, so, but the reason that I've gone through it, and, and as the price goes down, I think uh, Guy's solution makes a lot of sense. Um, in the what I've used the most is the Geffen HD extenders. Um, they go about 300 feet over Ethernet, um, and um, they uh, they're about I don't know, they're a couple 250 dollars, 300 bucks, you know, for the, for both ends. So it's not any less expensive than what guy is showing, probably more expensive, but that's what I've done. And I have a bunch of boxes on one side, a bunch of boxes on the other, and we run even, you just run inexpensive ethernet through everything. And if it gets cut or left behind, sometimes we build things that we just leave the cables behind. And so I don't wanna leave the fiber behind, but with ethernet, I'm like, well, let somebody have, they can have that. So <laughs> so so and uh, so that's uh, that's a kind of a common thing for us if we're building, building something into a set or into a stage or something like that. Oftentimes, it's more expensive to pay for the labor to wait to pull it out than to just leave it behind.
0: All right, fair enough. Next question.
1: David Paskin is back from Miami, Florida with this question. What are you hoping to hear at Zoomtopia
0: next week? Big question, but I guess we don't have anybody prognosticating, well, Alex will, will help us out. Alex, what are you thinking about?
3: I mean, obviously what we're focused on is, is what is, uh you know, the, the liminal team <laughs> going to release. So so I think all of us are focused on what are the new toys that we might get um, related to video and event production. Um, so, so hopefully we'll, they'll have some good news for us to, uh, next week. We'll see.
0: Yeah, I would imagine they've been meeting kind of in the breakout room for such a long time, or at least the test uh, bed. So I imagine that that's been active and that would indicate there's a lot of active development there. That's probably as much as any of us know, but we're looking forward to Zoomtopia because this is a technology this show relies on every single day. Let's move on to the next uh, question.
1: Douglas Carmichael's and I've read about NASA using structured light scanning in the development of the space launch system. There's a link for it. Is that the same process as the LiDAR on iPhone 14? Jason and Alex, Jason. Um, This is a loaded question. The short answer is yes. The the simplest
5: part of it is that this technically is LiDAR, but comparing it to what NASA does is, um, I I don't know. It feels a little bit disingenuous.
0: Uh, oh, I thought Alex was in here, but I guess we're going to have to take
5: that. Jason
3: nailed it. There was no reason to say anything more. That's
0: Fair good. enough. All right. Let's move on to the next question. Next question in from
1: Dan Shaw in Columbus, Ohio. Any suggestions for the best audio video flow if I have an XLR mic, MixPre 3 and A10 Mini? Is it better to go from MixPre into DSLR camera or have it go into the A10 with a l- delay set to match the video? Mitch. And I'm uh, looking at my Sony camera here, and as you can see, I'm plugged into this digital uh, adapter that's up here. If you weren't using the digital adapter, plugging directly into your Sony camera would be a mistake because almost every camera that I have, if it's a Sony, if it's in this range, um, the preamps and the the line amplifiers in the analog section are noisy and unusable. But if you go with one of these little... uh, uh, I'm trying to show it to you. Uh, one of these little adapters to plug onto the top of the camera right here, it's about 500 bucks, uh, you get the uh, audio in sync through exactly with the video. So that's my preferred method. That's what I'm using right now.
0: I think in the early days of the show here, there were a lot of people who ran our video signals and audio signals uh, through a camera so that the camera Could kind of synchronize things and then that one HDMI would come out to somewhere else. I know for me, um, I split those systems pretty early because the uh, Thunderbolt audio interface I was using seemed fast enough to be able to keep things in sync for me all the time. So Sometimes, in some circumstances, I think that can be a really good running everything into one central device and then just having the muxed output of that with audio and video fed to something else. But there are systems out there who allow you to split them up and get success, too.
4: So it's either or. Uh, let's go to David then Guy. David? Uh, just a follow up question. I, I remember hearing from this panel that the audio through the ATEM is not a good choice. Is that am I right about that? Well, That
0: was one of the reasons that I split them out, but let's
4: hear what Guy has to say.
2: Yeah, as Mickey would say, it really depends on the entire chain. So you got to look at what the device is. So if the DSLR camera has a really nice audio input section, then maybe you could use it. Some of the uh, higher end cameras have line input balanced XLRs. And so you can feed it in that way. Um, the other way is uh, just go skipping the item altogether together and going direct. What, what are you recording into? So skip that, that's what I do. I mean, if, if it's a V mixers or, or if it's a, a AJ key pro or something, I just go all the way and then delay the audio uh, so that I'm not putting the Tim in the chain at all. So there, there's there's no reason to go in there Don't. I mean, it's nice if you're doing something where you have like, let's say a baseball game and you have a shotgun on the camera and you want to do audio follows video and so you need that in there, then that's a different story. But if you're just recording like a stand up interview or something like that, I'd skip the entire ATEM chain and just go straight to the recorder or straight to the stream. Courtney, you had a thought? Uh,
6: Check Craigslist. in your neighborhood or eBay for uh, used Pix240s. I know this would be Alex's favorite because it has uh, balanced XLR inputs. You can send video in through it and use it uh, to convert from SDI to HDMI and HDMI to SDI. And uh, you can even record on it and use that as an input into your ATEM and then get the audio off of that uh, input SDI, I mean, HDMI input into the ATEM.
3: Alex, you want to weigh back in? Yeah, you would give up. You there's no good way to get from the mix pre three to the pix two forty, um, but I would say that the pix two forty is great. Uh, it just doesn't have noise assist, but other than that, and and the uh, um, the XLR inputs on the two forty will probably not the, the the XLR inputs on the. Um, the pixies the, the 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 next generation after that are pretty close to the mix pre 3 the ones that are in the original two pix 240s are are not as um not as quiet as the as the um as those inputs but it's an amazing box <laughs> the pix 240 is one of those classic pieces of machinery that was made i have a small collection of the things that i think were just at a moment in time, they were perfect. And the PIX240, I think at one point, I think I had 12 of them. <laughs> so so they're amazing little little uh, machines.
0: And
1: Mitch. I concur. Uh, the uh, uh, The Neve uh, processor for my microphone on my voiceover studio behind me, I had to be sent back to the factory and PIX240 to the rescue. And I found the preamps to be very good. Uh, quite nice, as a matter of fact. Okay, let's
0: move on. Next question.
1: From Matthew Jimenez from uh, Orlando, what would you consider the bare bones essential software tools for recording a video podcast?
3: Alex. An iPhone. <laughs> like, like you can, I mean, if you're doing single address to um, to something, a Samsung phone would probably worked fine as well. But the uh, the iPhone has a lot of podcast tools in it. Um, you'd be able to, and the only thing, the next thing up that you'd step up for is Better lighting, you know, some some lights and some and, and, a, and a better mic. Um, but it depends on what kind of podcast. If you're doing discussions, it's an entirely different discussion about what you want to do. But um, but I think if you're just doing a single address podcast, then then a then a uh,
2: an iPhone would be great. Guy, yeah, it depends on if you're on a Mac or PC as to which software. Uh, OBS is on both platforms. So it works way better on the PC than it does on the Mac. That starts at the free price point. If you are on the Mac, uh, I'd Go to Memo Live. Um, I'd also look at Wirecast, that's another option. It's gotten better in the last uh, version 15. And then on the PC, I love vMix, so uh, 60 bucks a month and you can have the full 4K version. And as long as you have a strong enough PC to run it, you can have all your graphics and sound effects. And I mean, I'm using it right now, it's pretty pretty cool stuff.
0: David Paskin.
2: For some reason, every time
4: someone says Memo Live, I feel the need to say Ecamm Live also. Uh, but Ec- <laughs> Ecamm is, uh, has recently been doing a big push around podcasting, uh, actually. I'm I not sure that there's anything unique in Ecamm for podcasting, but it certainly would work uh, the same way all those other tools would. Welcome to Office Hours, Platform Wars. Courtney,
6: get in on <laughs> Uh, well, all of the answers so far have been for great for live podcasting. But if you're not talking about live, in other words, you're just going to be capturing video, narrating video, traveling around, maybe uh, editing it together and then posting it uh, for a podcast video podcast that is not a live podcast, then almost any of the good uh, mirrorless DSLRs and there's a whole slew of Sony and uh, Canon, and Nikon and any of the other uh, DSLR manufacturers that are making Micro Four Thirds cameras. They're very compact, easy to carry, have fairly decent sound input, and, uh, and can create a, a really credible video podcast with high quality video and not bad audio. Uh, take a look at Hiking with Kevin, Kevin Nealon's podcast. He does it all himself off a single handheld camera, uh, interviews a lot of celebrities while they're hiking through the woods, and it, uh, you can create an amazing podcast with just a single handheld camera and maybe a little shotgun mic attached to the top of it.
2: Hi. Right. Yeah. I just had to fire back and take a jab over at David with his <laughs> eCam. uh, <laughs> shots fired. Um, does it record ProRes? So that's the thing is if you, if you want to do a video podcast and you want to edit in a professional tool, uh, I'd want ProRes. And so Mima Live will record ProRes. And so that's. That's my one gripe about eCams. I don't think it'll do any pros. I think you're recording into uh, an h.264 uh, compressed file. So editing, it's not going to be
3: and we pleasurable. Make, and we should make that request because it's not very, it, it's built into the system. All you have to do is ask for it. So
0: round seven, David Paskin returns to the ring. Touche. Okay, I have to admit, I was talking to Daria Musk the other day because she'd called me about some stuff and we were talking about she was going to be shooting on a particular camera. And my advice, and I think I sent her to Mitch because of that, was that it depends on the editing tool that she was going to use. You know, you don't want to be in a format and and Sony and others have been notoriously in the past. I don't know if it's true now for kind of recording in a format that works really well with Sony stuff. But it can be a little bit of a transcoding issue when you come out into other NLEs. Some are more friendly to some formats than others. So just check your process and make sure if you're going to be doing some work and you have a deadline, particularly that the whole production chain from camera to NLE, to upload to the web, is something you're comfortable with. Mitchell, you had a thought?
1: Yeah, I did get that uh, referral from uh, Daria. Thank you. Uh, And she's shooting with an FX3. And the question is, are you using the native Sony uh, codex? Uh, There's a program called Catalyst that Sony has that will allow you to export that into a a format, like a ProRes format that you can work with. So the Catalyst will get you into a format that, that will play nice with any editing system out there.
0: Yeah, and I imagine her workflow is such that she has time for that transcoding stage in the middle, and many people do, but a lot of us just want to take from camera directly into the NLE and get it out because we're on time constraints. It's just something to think about with your workflow. Either way works. Let's move on to the next question.
1: From Aaron Gencarelli in Flagstaff, Arizona. Have a stuck XLR cord in my MixPre-6. How do you remove an XLR that refuses to unplug? All right, now we're going
0: to get our hands dirty here. Jason, you're up first.
5: All right. So um, this is a this is an XLR. This is a Neutrik, and if you twist the back off of just about every XLR cable, you'll see that there's a bite here, and um, the bite you can very quickly kind of take apart. If you see that flat piece there, um, put a screwdriver in the back of it. Uh, be sure that the, uh, the the device is off, but um, put a screwdriver in there and you should be able to pull out those three
1: pins. From there, there's almost no tension and
5: it should come out without
1: an issue. Mitchell? Uh, used to have this happen back in the old days of what they used to call Canon plugs. Now, I think it was a brand for an XLR but uh, they were made kind of cheaply. And if the uh, the plug itself gets stepped on or crushed a little bit, it'll go out of round. And when you plug it in, if you get it in, um, generally uh, the fact that it's no longer round, you can tell by rolling it across your desktop, uh, is gonna make it a hard time. So the only thing you do is coax it out, is you have to use a lot of force and wiggle it to get it out, or just threaten to use nitric for everything and that will get it into shape. Courtney?
6: Well it may be broken, but on a mix pre three, you know, you have these little release of uh, things. You have to press in to release it. That that uh, captures the catch inside that XLR connector. But because the way the case is designed, you you know, if you have fat fingers like me, a lot of times you can't push it in far enough to release it. So try taking a screwdriver or something skinnier than your fat finger and pressing it as far in as you can and then push in a little bit on the XLR while you push in. It's, it's a little bit of a talent when you push in on the little release button here and then pull it out and see if that'll release it. Uh, If not, uh, then you may have to result to Jason's method.
0: And actually, Mitch reminded me, I've set behind things with an out-of-round XLR trying to pull it out. And for me, a set of channel locks used very, very delicately in different quadrants to see if you can just round it off enough to pull it out. Uh, There are a lot of ways to do it, but hopefully all this gives you uh, plenty of options to take a shot at. Let's move on to the next question. Douglas Carmichael is here
1: with a question. Many electric vehicles like the Ford F-150 Lightning and the Kia EV6 offer vehicle-to-load capability or powering other devices from your vehicle. Could you see this useful for small productions in out-of-the-way places?
0: Nigel's going to start us off.
7: I believe one, if Jeff used his Tesla to drive the system uh, we had in the desert to support uh, Mr. Predator's rocket, I would point out there are some obvious disadvantages of being in the middle of a desert uh, under a lot of sunlight in a vehicle that requires air conditioning. So the answer would probably be a short production. Uh, Otherwise you're going to have to power it another way because in case you need air conditioning in the vehicle and other things, you still have to drive it home. Alex. Yeah, we've been powering stuff with our cars for
3: a long time. You have to be careful with a regular a regular um, vehicle because the battery's so small. <laughs> so you don't wanna do it for very long, but you can actually take an uh, inverter and plug it into your engine and then turn it on and it'll last a long time. <laughs> like, you know, and you can run a lot of lights and uh, especially now with LEDs, uh, lights, cameras, uh, everything out there, uh, it, it produces, um, uh, you know basically the equivalent we've basically produced the equivalent of three 20 amp circuits you know from a truck so um so it's been pretty pretty effective but that's not coming out of the lighter that's coming out of the that's being uh, connected directly to the block
6: courtney gooden yeah you have to be careful because you know you're running down your primary source of power to get you out of the middle of the desert so uh if the show goes long or you got a lot of powerful lights, you may find yourself stranded, uh, which is probably even a worse situation than not having enough power to do your show. Um, I, might, I might opt for a plug-in hybrid in that case to, to do the show, but be forewarned that plug-in hybrids usually don't have means of powering anything externally except off the 12-volt system, which by the way is only charged, at least in mine, uh, when it is running. So strangely enough, it doesn't charge the tw- it it says it charges the 12 volt battery if you leave it sitting for a long period of time off the high voltage battery, but sometimes it doesn't. And your car will be dead and unable to start because that 12 volt battery is dead, even though the high voltage battery is fully charged.
0: It's fascinating being out at the rocket launch, and, and I when I the first time I saw one F Jeff's car powering the switching truck, I remember looking at it and thinking, look at all these cables coming out from under the hood, uh, which was the battery, I guess, their circumstance, and then going to this huge uh, switching gear built into the inside of the car so they could sit in there and switch. And then I saw all the dust that was swirling around everywhere, and I went, I how long it took him to clean the interior of the Tesla out after that? That was uh, an interesting shoot. Let's move on to the next question here. From Matthias
1: Utilia from Helsinki, Finland, what is preferred way to connect iPad camera signals to an A10 Mini? Apple TV, digital AV adapter. Is there any issues with Apple TV and A10 Mini with HDCP using iPad ninth generation? Jason will start us. Any class compliant adapter, OWC is one of my
5: favorites. They make a $50 tiny little micro dock that you can put power into and then immediately get Ethernet, I believe a USB 3.1 generation one and a and a 4K HDMI out, and it will work absolutely. As far as HDCP, that's going to be an issue no matter what um, you use to connect it. If you have, um, if you're playing something from iTunes, it may very well not translate. And you know that's, you know, it's working the way it's supposed to. Nigel,
7: yeah, I use a Satachi desktop holder. So if I show you what my iPad looks like, that's what it looks like. So it doesn't go to the full size of. Of the frame, but I find that really useful because it it really uh, presents it to me. I can easily get to it. I can uh, put Keynote on and draw my pen, and it has both Ethernet and uh, uh, HDMI inputs and outputs. Guy,
2: yeah, I like the uh, NDI capture app. That so I'm running it right now. Um, if I cut over, so this is just NDI out. Um, you can see that it's uh, it's live. So basically, once you're in the NDI world, you can use an Apple TV with Sienna and that'll give you the HDMI into the uh, A10 Mini, or you can use something like the new Bird Dog Play that would also do it, or there's some other kinds of adapters, but I like NDI or physical cable, <laughs> so the Apple HDMI adapter is the other one that just that works, but this, this app has been really good, so uh, I'd recommend it.
1: Next question. James Babbitt, San Diego, California. YouTube videos have often synthesized your music playing in the background. What are some of the sources of royalty-free music for videos? David, start us off.
4: Uh, my favorite is Epidemic Sound. Um, the, with a uh, subscription, any song that you use, they have figured out the YouTube algorithm, and they make sure that you don't get taken down. Alex? Epidemic sound
3: <laughs> is, is there, there just because it's simple and and they're really, really well produced. They also produce stems so they, um, so that you can say, oh, I want to pull the drums back a little bit, or I only want the drums or I only want the bass. And as David said, they figured out not just YouTube, but it's Facebook and, you know, the, all the ones that are co- doing content matches there, they, they're doing the work to make sure that you don't have to worry about whether that's, you know, because if you do something from pond five, for instance, um, you. you other people might have used it and then they claim their own videos and now yours is getting claimed too. Um, So, so epidemic makes makes sure that they're the original claim and then they they don't claim it out. So, so that they do a really good job. I would say think hard about it. (laughs) Think hard about whether you put music. I it's actually one of my pet peeves is when I go to training videos and they've got this sound music when I'm thinking behind I have to admit music when I'm thinking is not something I want to hear. So I, I get really frustrated why <laughs> I'm just like, oh, I just wish I could turn that music off cause I'm trying to listen to the person talk. And so I, I think that it's, it's something that is old. It, it, it's a legacy product of the, of the eighties, you know, music, uh, like uh, training videos and stuff that they were so bad that we had to put music under them to make them more palatable. But I don't think we need to do that most of the time anymore. Jason. Yeah. And if you're going to do segments
5: in your training video, I'm haunted to this day by, um, the Dante or no, I'm sorry. Um, Behringer. Behringer had this training series and they used the same intro and the same outro and you have to watch it in this 30 piece, um, segment. And it made me crazy. So yes, absolutely. If you're going to do these stay away from it because it's going to
0: haunt me. I will say that, um, often poorly recorded content, with a bad noise floor, particularly for cutting between scenes and the noise floor is changing radically back and forth, those kind of circumstances are about the only place where I would think of music as a low-grade distraction from bad cutting. The obvious goal is to do your recording better so you don't have those problems and so you don't have to cover them up with something like this kind of audio band-aid. Let's go on to the next question.
1: From Harshid Trivedi from Daytona Beach, Florida, and here on our panel, 24-bit has devices ranging in some offering 48 kilohertz, then the more common 96 kilohertz versus more modern devices offering 192 kilohertz. What would you feel is the major difference between a sampling rate of 96 kilohertz versus 192 kilohertz? Is there any difference in your opinion? Alex?
3: As a delivery format, probably not. Um, As a uh, source format, so basically, if you think about a sound wave like this, you know, there's two different things that you're dealing with. One is the bits, and the and the and then next is the sample. The sample is how many boxes do I build that describe this? You know, so how often are these boxes coming up? And and 192 is of course 192,000 instead of 41,000 or Forty-four point one thousand, and then it and then it decides the bit depth is how what's the dynamic range. So the dynamic range on sixteen bit I think is uh, I believe ninety six dB. Um, I think it's one forty four for um, twenty four bit, and then it goes past that. So so the, those bit depths decide how much it can cover, and then the sample rate is how often it's going to sample it because of course analog is infinite, um, but the uh, but we have to build a quantization of that <laughs> to, some, to some point, to some point, point. and it's where that happens. Um, when you're listening to it, you, you won't be able to hear it. Um, if you are stretching it, turning it, retiming it, doing anything in post with it, you may wanna have a higher sample rate to start with, kind of like you'd have, I may wanna have a ton of data in the original fi- raw file that I capture with my Blackmagic camera, but I'm not going to deliver that to YouTube, <laughs> and or even even if I put it out in ProRes, you're not. Going to, I threw away a bunch of data that I didn't need um, there. But it's nice to have when I start. Absolutely, Mitchell.
1: Yeah, I agree with Alex there. It makes sense. The sampling rate is the little stair steps on the waveform. Mm-hmm. And to be honest with you, I don't think anybody can really hear that well over 96 kilohertz. But remember, it also takes into account the DAC or the digital yeah. analog converter that you may have that deals with that Annie Ellie scene. So, in combination, I think a 96 is about as good as anybody can possibly hear, unless you've got really golden ears. Courtney.
6: Yeah, actually, you can't hear any better than 48. Thanks to the Nyquist Shannon uh, effect, which is uh, dictates uh, the the highest sample rate needed to achieve. Uh, Uh, complete restoration as far as in the range of human hearing. As Alex said, if you're doing sound effects or something where you're gonna wanna record something and then slow it down for effect, then you might wanna go to 192. But for human consumption, 48 kilohertz is probably good enough uh, since most humans can't hear much above uh, 20,000 and most of them can't hear much above 14 to 16,000 hertz. And using the Nyquist-Shannon algorithm, for uh, calculating sample rate, 44.1 is probably good enough for everybody, and 48 is is great. And I suggest you go, and if you think that, well, with only two samples to reconstruct that, it's going to sound uh, raspy and noisy, and so more samples is better, that's, that's not really true. I suggest you go watch a video from uh, Technology Connections does one on... Uh, the Nyquist-Shannon, the backbone of digital sound. And he describes uh, how uh, A to D converters work and how the Nyquist-Shannon sample rate uh, plays into the uh, audibility of the human
3: mind. And uh, it's it's very comprehensive and explains it all.
0: Alex, real quick.
3: And again, the only thing, the only reason that I would use 192 is for a, as a capture format. And I have used it when we know that it's going to be a very complex thing and we're going to do a lot of effects to it because oversampling, you know, even though we may deliver at 1080p for something, I still like to capture at 4K or at 8K or something else because that oversampling image-wise makes a big difference for me as far as the cleanness of that final output. But, um, but, I, but again, I, I only oversample if I'm going to do heavy post on it.
0: Mitch, real quick.
1: Yeah, for example, if I'm uh, taking a CD audio and I'm uh, taking that 44.1 into a recorder, I might do it at 88.2 because the math works better. And uh, if you have the math even, there's not bits being thrown about.
3: And I mean, and, and just like uh, in the same way, I think about all of these things as oversampling because you know when we do motion capture, for instance, we try to capture it as high as 490 frames a second, even though we're gonna deliver 30 frames a second or 24 frames a second. And the reason we do that is so that we have, we as we work through that data, it makes it easier for us to run a lot of filtering over way more data than we need and then squash it back down. And it's, a, it's, a, it's gonna be a cleaner output. So we never wanna lose whether it's images, sound, motion capture, other things there's a huge advantage when you're going to do post to oversample (laughs) so so um, now you don't want to go crazy because it it is it takes up a lot of storage but oversampling you know capturing at the same level that you're going to output leaves you with a lot less options when you need to do work on it Courtney real fast
6: and I might point out that almost all A to D converters uh, run at a oversampled uh, high sample rate on their input then they Decimate it down and uh, average it to generate and apply their brick wall filters, uh, anti-aliasing filters to them uh, before they convert it to 48 or 44.1. So they are oversampling. The only reason to use the higher sample rate is, as Alex said, if in post production you want to change the resolution uh, or or go down, slow it down, or change the the sample rate in post. For the effect.
0: only other comment I'm going to add to this before we finish it up to do it on it for a while is that um, I wholeheartedly agree with Alex, uh, capture at the maximum you can because you never know what's going to happen in the future. But if you don't use a mezzanine codec in between, I have seen people try to keep the best quality possible through the whole chain and they get into the circumstance where their systems just don't work with it because they're working with too much data. They're going to throw it away in the last stage. Sometimes it's better to do that mezzanine codec so you can work with it functionally, get it out at the right level. That it's not too degraded. Keep the originals, but don't try to work with the originals every day. All right, let's move on to the next question.
1: From Chris Weidner in Lafayette Indiana, Chris asks: Starlink in motion is here. I'm going to order it for the antennas are much better than I should help my oh and it should help my tree issue, but for in motion broadcast with three to four cameras in a cloud production, what are some
0: possible use cases? I'm not sure if we have anybody who's on Starlink here. Nobody's raised their hand on it and so guy, can you do it real quick? Oh, we got a couple. Sure.
2: Yeah, the, uh, the unit is kind of pricey. It's 2500 bucks for this hardware. It's 135 bucks a month. Uh, what can you do with it? Well, it if you want to send cameras up, I don't think that that's going to be the best uh, multiple cameras. I don't think that's going to be the best use. I think when you say cloud production, I would send the cameras to the cloud. That's the benefit. It's stable at the cloud. And then you can control and cut your show from being on the road or being mobile. But if you did have to bring up contribution feeds, um, it, it's gonna be spotty because you're jumping from satellite to satellite here. There's now 3,500 uh, satellites up there. So keep in mind that uh, the earth rotates and you may have some glitches as it goes from place to place. So if you can shoot it up to an AWS or I know that you have that shadow PC, uh, use SRT mini server. You can send up those feeds via SRT even behind that wall. Uh, I did some tests and uh, if you have that premium plan, it actually works. So that's an option that's only 50 bucks a month. So. Give it a roll, let us know, 2,500 bucks. I, I need to create a GoFundMe to get one. I want one, I want to put one in my car <laughs> Alex,
3: do you have a couple of quick thoughts on yeah, it? Yeah, I definitely want to put one in my car. I, I I do plan to take the one I own right now. I'm trying to figure out, I can't use it because I, I, there's too much trees around it, but I want to sell everybody honey. So I, have this, I was going to tell everyone about it. There's this honey that I buy on the side of the road and up and up in Bodega Bay, and I was like, I'm going to do it. And so that everybody can just buy, <laughs> buy, buy honey. I won't make any money on it, but it will be fun. The idea is to do mobile, mobile. Uh, I, I want to experiment with the idea of mobile purchasing of physical goods, which is that you know, we take you somewhere and you can buy a bunch of stuff and then we'll send it to you. <laughs> so, because um, I think that there's applications for that all over the world.
0: We're going to run out of time a little bit, uh, so I'm going to run over. That's okay. Mm-hmm. And Harshid, next question. Our next question for Harsheed from
1: Harshid Trevetti is here with a question. Wants to know, I went down the mute switch rabbit hole on Sweetwater last night. Could you remind me of the model of your mute switch, Bill? Perhaps it's the MS-111 or M11?
0: It is the MS-111. That's the one I'm using. So, next question.
1: Sorry about that. We had to clear that up quickly. Douglas Carmichael back again. IMAX has heavily marketed the immersive audio experience of the upcoming NHL Global Series game live from Tampere, Finland. How would you mix sports in an immersive format and would you adapt your m- m- miking strategy for an immersive
0: live mix? Alex and Courtney, Alex, take it away.
3: Yeah, you don't have to really. I mean, I don't know what I don't actually don't know what the NHL does as far as, but I can tell you that the NBA has well over twenty mics that are that are um, around the court. So ones a, a behind the glass, there's nine to twelve of them that are just getting the screeches along the floor. So there's a lot of miking that's already available, um, and I and I'm going to imagine that you're probably getting a similar amount of those for for hockey. So there's a lot of stems that are all or, or channels that are all available. Um, to you it's just a matter of figuring out how to transport those and then how to put them back into a into a place that makes the most sense and then the the thing that really adds a lot of immersion to um, this kind of thing is the audience as well so sometimes you know they they and I'm, oftentimes there's Four to six mics that are in the audience as well to, that they use for broadcast. So um, typically, I know with NBA we we find that we get twenty to thirty mics available to us for immersion. We've done a bunch of three sixty stuff with the NBA, and so um, so so the uh, and so we use we put those all over the place, and and the, the crowd is the thing that makes the most difference. Courtney. Yeah, something like hockey is such a fast-moving
6: sport that you can't really follow it and make it uh, make sense to a viewer if you're cutting between different cameras and perspectives on something that's moving that fast. It's mainly the uh, environmental sounds—the sound of the crowd, the sound of the PA, the sound of the the echo of the of the people cursing uh, at a distance—that uh, uh, makes up a <laughs> hockey a hockey match. I would not put uh, wireless mics on the individual players because you'd be knocked off the air quickly.
0: Yes, next question. Next
6: question in
1: from Harshid Trivedi from Daytona Beach, Florida, and right here on our panel. On certain DI boxes, it sums down mono for XLR output. Would that suffice versus a stereo output? Whirlwind and Switchcraft make devices that you can grab your iDevices and Android outputs, of PC, Mac, which takes stereo input to a mono output? Mitch? um it's it you can't just take stereo and stick them together and expect to get a proper mono a, a mono output a mono output uh it's uh it requires that they be properly summed and uh in the old days we used to use a, a resistive bridge network to make that happen so these boxes are probably using either a transformer or some type of bridging network in there to do that or if it's an active Summing device. There's an op amp in there that's doing all the uh, magic that has to be done. That Courtney's going to explain.
0: Courtney,
6: yeah, I just had to do this on um, to get the output of my uh, ATEM into the Rodecaster Pro because the Rodecaster Pro uh, inputs are mono only, unless you want to take up two of the inputs and and use a stereo control of them. And I didn't want to sacrifice that, so I used a resistor network, two 10k resistors, one for each leg, and then another 20k resistor to ground. Uh, off the input uh, to provide the proper load and that will properly mix them. That little resistor network is small enough to build into an actual quarter inch uh, uh, plug uh, connector.
0: I was shocked when I found a, I had a friend who was a front of house mixer for major bands and he told me the whole show was running mono. And that's particularly to avoid summing issues out in the field where if you put two sides of stereo together you never know where things are going to hit nulls and things like that so they do them all in mono just to avoid that so mono is your friend sometimes let's move on to the next question we've got two more and we'll get oh no one more just this last one
1: douglas carmichael i remember watching a video that showed the ibm z16 mainframe and it used a european standard c form connector even though the IBM lab it was shot in was in the US, wouldn't Camlocks be the US three-phase power connector standard, Jason?
5: Um, C-form, there are several. C-form se- um, 7 is, is um, the standard for sockets. 13 is for cables and cords. 17 is for plugs and sockets for industrial purposes. And 22 is for couplers. So I don't know what you mean by, by C-form specifically. And they can all be adapted.
0: It, it Really, that is the purpose of this kind of a lock. There you go. We've made it through our first hour. Thank you, one and all. Thank you all for putting in questions. Thank you to the panelists, as always, for a series of excellent answers. And now we're going to switch to our second hour today. And today we are talking about interviewing. And uh, I didn't prepare anything other than the fact that I think we can have a really interesting discussion about interviewing. It is such an uh, a broad Uh, discussion subject. And there's all kinds of it. I mean, we tend to see professional interviewees doing beautiful work on uh, TV panel shows and in other circumstances here on Office Hours. Uh, Alex has uh, been generous enough to bring Michael Krasny into our world who is a planetary class interviewer. And it's just you watch somebody like that work with somebody and you realize what a beautiful, delicate art it is to extract information from somebody that remains engaging and compelling to watch. For many of us, we start this process as we're maybe video producers or things like that, and we have somebody who's an expert in a corporation or something like that, and we have to set up our first interviewers. Typically, it's that person on camera with somebody doing the interviewing, asking questions of them behind the camera, And I know when I started, I've done probably 250 or so of these live, uh, and the first 25 or 30 of them, I was horrible at it. I made every possible mistake in the book, and then for the next 25 to 50, I maybe got one of those things fixed every time I did it. And it really wasn't until I was approaching having done a whole string of interviews, particularly a couple of circumstances where I had to go into a conference and they would bring in people to me over and over again. And I think I did in a couple of uh, uh, conferences, 30 or 40 interviews over the course of two days, which is one person after another. And I finally started to understand some things about the rhythm of engaging with people. Never got to be a world class interviewer because it's hard. To me, this is like learning to skate or learning to do something else. You're a little uncomfortable at first. You tend to jump on people or think you have to prepare. Your, your questions are longer than their answers. All these things that are really bad kind of fails. And if nothing else, for me, the most important one was I wasn't able to make the person I was interviewing relax and feel comfortable being on camera. It is very a delicate thing. Most people you may have done this a bunch of times. But often with an amateur, somebody not in the entertainment business, they've never been in front of a camera. And the minute you turn it on, they can be a little deer in the headlights. They're in a different environment. Lights are on them. They know a microphone is on. It's on the record and it's very hard. Well, it's not hard, but it's it's you have to do some special things to make them feel comfortable and get them to relax and get them to out of the mindset of I'm on camera and into the mindset of I'm talking to this person as a human being. And then once you achieve that so that you actually have the discussion going, the next challenge for me was always to listen, to pay attention to what they're saying, to enhance and make them feel increasingly comfortable rather than increasingly uncomfortable with what we were talking about to the point where they could relax and become themselves. And for me, that was always my goal. How do I get this person to look good, sound good, and be themselves and then get some useful sound bites? Because that was my other job. It's really you know, a lot of people over explain. I tend to do that myself. So with that, that's all the preamble I'm going to do. Uh, we're going to hear from other people. Alex is going to give us some thoughts on interviewing. And so is Nigel. Alex, take it away.
3: Yeah. And it also depends on what kind of interview you're doing. So if you're doing a podcast where you're interviewing someone, it's kind of a free range type thing. So and again, if you listen to something like gray matter uh, dot show, Michael Krasny probably one of the best. In the world at what he does and so just watching him um you know pull together an interview is is really fascinating some things that i that that we've learned over time working with michael working with other people first thing is research you you really want to know your subject well it doesn't mean that you're going to write a bunch of long questions you do usually i go into an a one-hour interview with 10 to 15 questions that I have available to me, am I going to ask them? I don't know, <laughs> but, I, but I definitely, but I definitely came up with something so that I'm not coming up with it during the show. Um, you know, I know that folks like Michael Krasny will read all the, I think he, I think he it feels like he reads all the books that the person wrote, but um, but he at least reads the most recent ones to get their current thinking. Um, they, he, he, you know, he'll search, you know, through a lot of those things. And, and so really understanding Trying to understand how they work before you get there gives you a sense of what and what you're trying to get out of the interview. So, for instance, we do a lot of testimonials. Testimonials are very different than just an open interview. An open interview is exploration and trying to find it. Testimonials means I work for a company and I want um, a, cu- a client to talk about how great my company is. And so, I want to figure out a way to get them to say that as naturally as possible. And we internally talk a little bit about when we do that we have what we call direct and cross and this is very this comes from the legal side of things um is you start with direct which is the way you do it in a courtroom it's open-ended and what a direct is is you can't put anything in their mouth so so you say uh what did you do with here and how did you get there and where and and you're not there's no place for a yes or no answer there's no you're out these are open-ended questions that you want them to Um, explain what's going on. And so you'll start with that and you're trying to use your direct to get all the answers because those are gonna be the best ones that you're gonna get. When you give up on that, you go to cross, which is that you start saying, well, can you talk about, can you talk about how great our company is? Or can you talk about, you don't want to get into that at first. You you want to try to explore the conversation so that you get the sound bites that you're looking for. Um, some other things that to think about are eye contact. Anytime you can use a ter- in Teratron, it works better. Like just just flat out. Like it. The, looking off camera these days, like this, when I'm getting interviewed and I'm looking over to the side. It's kind of old, old media at this point. So it just doesn't feel the same as it used to. Um, and I, I feel like when I see it now, I, I don't, I, I just, it's not, it's just not the same after all of us have had Zoom and Blue Jeans and Skype. We're all used to looking straight at each other. And so um, it feels very old now. And so finding a way to do it, and I've been doing Interatron for the last 15 years, and I just feel like it's a better, it's a, it's a better experience for the viewer. It's a better experience for everyone there, but you have to be able to see them. One of the mistakes that we see interviewers do all the time is they'll start asking questions and they'll look down for their next question. The person's answering the question and not getting feedback. You know, and so the thing is, you have to be very careful of trying to keep everything up and, and only glancing down at what you want to do if you're doing that interview because you're taking energy away from them. When you're nodding, and looking at, them, oh, yeah, it's really good. It encourages them to say more. They get more excited about what they're talking about and they'll say a lot more than they did before. And I think a lot of people um, miss that. And then finally, uh, I guess the, the thing we we tell people a lot is, you know, as a moderator, a lot of time your job is to extend a question, extend an answer when they're not fully answering it and cut them off when they're <laughs> answering too much. When they get into the weeds and they start digging down into something, especially if you can't edit it later. And, but the, but the main thing is to only, use as many words as you have to it's about them not about you and you want to use only the only the words that you need to elicit the answer you know and so and sometimes that means you're going to set something up you're going to say something you're going to you know put them in a context so they understand why you're doing that then you're going to go into the question but always keep in mind that um you want to every word is a failure (laughs) you know that, that you're saying as the interviewer um is is you know you're not you know every every group of words you want to see as Oh, I can't believe I had to say so many things because the, the perfect interview is always going to be the person on the other end um, being excited and talking about something that they're passionate about.
7: Nigel, your thoughts. Yeah, Alex said a lot of great stuff. Maybe I'll end up repeating most of it, but I'll offer three thoughts. Uh, First of all, preparation. Uh, Well, you talk about over-preparing. I think you can under-prepare just as much. And uh, you have to be a remarkable person to do an interview over a period of time with having done no preparation. Um, I know there are famous people that used to do CNN shows that they say never did any preparation, but mostly you need to. What I always try and focus on to start with is what is the storyline of that I'm trying to get out? What are the highlights? What are the milestones? And then I budget, you know, try and budget at least. You know, if I'm there, if it's gonna be half an hour and I wanna cover these four subjects, you know, some sense of the flow. And and as I do that in an initiative process, I'm much more prepared. Um, the second thing I would tell you is to practice as much as you can. If it's a really important interview, do a mock interview with somebody. Have someone sit in. Don't don't feel scared of practicing. Um, it, it's a thing that takes uh, effort and time and judgment. and And if it's a really important interview, have someone. And you think they're a difficult person, then have someone play a difficult person and prepare for it. I guess the, the last most important thing about interviewing, I found at least, is uh, if you've practiced and you've prepared, then you can listen. If you can't listen, you cannot do a good interview. And there's nothing more annoying, I think, when you watch news on television or you watch interviews where they are so ready to bang in their next question. They really don't listen to the what's said. And, and a couple of things happen. A, they let ridiculous stuff get through without checking it and B, the audience is just left spinning. So, you know, two ears, one mouth, you've got to use them in that proportion. And if, and if you are actively listening and the person you're interviewing thinks you're actively listening, it'll be a much better experience for both you, the interviewee and the person watching it.
1: Mitchell. Yeah, I agree with everything that preceded. Uh, particularly making eye contact with them and having them make eye contact with you, because in this, in essence, with an ateratron, they're looking at the person that's watching the video, not talking like this. Because who talks like this in a general conversation? It's convenient, uh, but not necessarily uh, appropriate. And I try to break down what kind of a person I have that I'm doing an interview. If they've never been in front of a camera before, they're scared. They're they're nervous. They've got that you know, deer-in-the-headlights look on their face. And you want to do your very best to put them at ease. And a lot of times uh, in those situations where I have somebody that I know they're uncomfortable, is I just start talking to them. And uh, I just give a cue to the cameraman just to start rolling so that the conversation about today's weather, the commute to the shoot, everything else, uh, eventually morphs into the actual, before they know it, they're already answering questions. And they're saying, well, are we ready to start? I said, we already started so you know that initial fear that they're gonna freak out or do something stupid uh has been allayed because they find out it's no big deal i'm just having a conversation with this guy so that's for people that are new to it uh, just to put them very much at ease um i kind of like doing that i'm doing a lot of interviews in my time um the looking directly at person is something if you get a professional the problem with a professional or somebody that's a um, uh, a a pundit or um, an expert in some field is that they have their own agenda. They're not really hearing your question, just looking for an opportunity to spit out what it is that they want to, uh, the thing that they want to talk about. You have to try to steer around that as best you can, because it's not an interesting conversation when you hear somebody just doing talking points. Um, And then there are some people that are just really skilled at doing interviews and they make not only the person asking the questions comfortable, but they themselves are very comfortable and of the most, recent interviews i've done um our u.s congressman uh chris coons just has a really great talent for and you're going to start seeing this guy more and more on uh, national television networks no i don't mean to be political i'm just saying he just has that natural ability to instantly have facts on the top of his head without having to refer to notes or hearing anybody or looking at a a, a teleprompter just does it. So some people just have that gift of being able to be good at it. Last time I saw him, I said, this isn't your first rodeo, is it? Jason Bache. Uh,
5: My first rule of interviewing is that if you're explaining, you're losing, which means don't try to qualify your questions. That means you haven't actually nailed in your question. If you're having to, you know, dial it in, progressively more and more and more. And by the time you're actually at the question, the person is is just completely and totally lost. So try not to explain what you're after. Instead, craft your questions such that you can be succinct. Courtney.
6: Yeah, I'm gonna push back a little bit on the Interatron use and the eye contact directly into the camera. Uh, because there are situations where you have a celebrity interviewer or a, you know a fairly famous interviewer, and they're at the location. Both the interviewee and the interviewer are in the same location, and you have multiple cameras to cover it with, so you can go to an over-the-shoulder shot, or you can go to a wide two-shot to show the relationship between the interviewer and the interviewee. Then looking directly into the camera, I think, seems rude, because if they're looking slightly off-camera, you don't want to go too far off like Uh, Mitch uh, demonstrated, just to the left or to the right, depending on which side of the camera the interviewer is uh, sitting on, based on where the -the over-the-shoulder shots are done, uh, can generate uh, that more personality. I think it, it, it makes the audience feel that the person is being rude to the interviewer if the interviewer is in the same room with them. And uh, in that case, I would avoid, because if the person goes from the interviewer, like over here, I'm being interviewed by someone just off to the left of the camera, and then I switch to the camera, it looks like I'm now talking to the audience and then not talking to the interviewer. So it's like the person being interviewed is changing their attention from the interviewer and answering the question to the audience and making a direct comment is breaking the fourth wall. And I think that makes f- people feel a little bit uncomfortable, even though I do rent in Terratron. So when in Hollywood, <laughs> call me.
3: Alex, you had another thought? Yeah, and, and I admit that I, I think that how I had that framed was really when I'm interviewing people to – um uh, if I'm interviewing them for, that I'm going to use their footage, you know, or I'm going to interview them online or or something like that, that I tend to want to have them look look straight at the camera. Uh, if, if people are two people in the same room, you should absolutely have them look at each other and then, and then put the cameras. And usually what we're trying to do is make sure that we can, the cameras are wide enough that as Courtney said, that they're going almost over the shoulder, if not over the shoulder. And a lot of times they do do the over the shoulder to kind of frame it, you know, or have a, a camera that can do that. So you might have, so definitely have those, those kind of cameras out wide um, to do that. So I do agree with Courtney in that environment. I have to admit that I, I avoid that environment as much as I can, um, mostly because um, I, I just really feel like when two people, when people are talking to each other here, as a viewer, I'm on the outside. When they're talking to each other directly through an Interrotron, I'm on the inside. And this is a place that I can't exist in the real world, and I very much like it. <laughs> so so And, and so um, I like being in a place where I feel like they're, they're talking to me, both of them. And, and I, and, and it's something that we now have available to us. And it's something that, I mean, I, I didn't understand what an intertron was when it was requested by a client and I had to build one, but in over 15 years, I because 80% of what we did was through some system. We got to a point where we didn't even bring the interviewer with us. We just had them come in over Skype and then Hangouts then. Than Zoom, uh, but but it was all it was one of those things that it, it gave our interviewers sanity because they could cover we could have a much less technical system go out, and it gave them uh, you know an interviewer could interview you know eight people in different parts of the world in one day, um, and so we very much very quickly moved away from um, that physicalness that that is very inefficient.
0: Mitch real quick. We're gonna try to get to questions
4: here pretty quick.
1: Yeah, another quick tip. Uh, try to use a longer lens. get the get the gear and the camera out of their face. Uh, if you're, if they're new to it and they've got a camera right up the right up against them, it's very intimidating. Get a longer lens, get back behind them a little bit, maybe about eight feet.
0: All these things are good things. As to the on camera or off, to me, it has to do with the emotional intensity I'm trying to achieve. And it's a kind of counterintuitive, I think directly into the camera with somebody looking at you is the most direct human to human connection. Now if I'm delivering information or I'm having fun and I'm enjoying the interview, I love this direct one to one kind of look. I have interviewed people who are in emotional distress though, victims of things, and sometimes looking at somebody who's emotionally distraught face on, maybe even crying, is almost too much. And in that case, I would prefer them To to give me, as the audience, a little bit of distance from them. I want to see that they're passionate or upset or whatever, but I don't want that entirely in my face. That's almost too hot for me as an emotional temperature for that. So I'm judging the subject and trying to figure out what's the best approach to set up this interview. Do I need to give them some space or can I put them right in front of the audience and have that one-on-one conversation that's going to be positive for them? All right, let's go to the questions. We've got a lot of questions here.
1: Okay, first question in, Andy Kokendorfer from Viera, Florida. How do you deal with interview subjects that only answer yes
0: or no? And so you're asking, uh, and Alex was mentioning this, you're asking open, uh, closed ended questions, and that's generally not a bad, not a good thing to do. Jason, dive in.
5: All right. So beginning journalism 101, right? You know, the the five W's and the H, who, what, when, where, and why, and how. All of those, except for the H, can be answered in one word little segments. The power of how is that it forces an answer to be much more elaborate. You can't simply say yes or no, and um, it, it will give you a lot more. So I would try to rephrase the questions by, use, by beginning them with how. Courtney?
6: Yeah, I, uh, Jason stole my answer. I was going to say oh. never start, look at your questions, and if they start with do or did, you know they can be answered in one answer you know do do you think this do you think that and the answer can be yes or no so never use do or did always ask when or how or what do you think about or so on and and those can't be answered with a simple yes or no question uh, yes or no answer so look at your questions and look at the starting word of each question and if it says do or
7: did throw it out nigel so uh, whenever I'm preparing for, uh, to do an interview, I remember the words of the poem by Roger R. Kipling, who I appreciate is politically not very correct, but he was a journalist. And to, really, to the point Jason made, his famous poem, Six Honest Men, he said, I keep six honest serving men. They taught me all I knew. Their names are what and why and when and how and where and who. And that uh, is the first thing I try and remember all the time uh, as I'm prepping.
1: Mitch? Sometimes you get somebody that uh, because they're uncomfortable, they're as- answering in yes or no questions. If it's a corporate executive or a CEO, uh, you can't embarrass them. They have to save face when you're there. You have to make them feel comfortable. So what I'll do in a situation where uh, they're, they're saying yes or no or they're giving short uh, answers that don't serve the need of the interview, um, I'll feed them the line. And I know that's uh, that's verboten for most cases, but if you tell it to them the right way, um, you say like you re- what you really meant to say was da 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 or whatever it was, um, then they feel more comfortable repeating it back to you, and
0: now you've got your uh, soundbite to get your interview done have to admit, I've faced both kinds of people, people who, when they're really nervous, shut down and don't say anything. And then people on the other side who, if they're overly nervous, will just talk and talk and talk and talk. And getting a sound bite out of them can be uh, frustrating. Hopefully you take it two or three times, but sometimes I've fallen back to the same thing Mitch has. Look, I just need a little piece of this and it can't be more than a few seconds. How would you say, and I'd feed them a suggestion, but try to get them to put it in their own words. It's it's. You know, if you don't have tons of time and you just got to get the soundbite, sometimes you're in those kind of circumstances. It's dangerous, but I think we've all done it at one point or another. Alex?
3: Yeah, it, it, sometimes it's are they media trained or not? Because the, you can always tell if you're ta- talking to someone who's media trained because they they're trained to build in sound bites. You know, they're 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 literally they're trained. You, you have ideas that you want to co- put out and you are trained to talk, say it in, in like two sentences and they will practice for hours to get those sentences down to exactly what they want. So when you're working with someone trained, it's kind of given. Um, the other side of that also is really take it on that it's your accountability to have them come out of their shell. and And, and a lot of that has to do with the entire environment that they're in you know, this, an inter a great interview often starts. I mean, you have people that are great at being interviewed and then that's easy. You know, they, they're going to come in. You know, we had Leo Laporte on last week. He's easy <laughs> to interview. Like he's just going to sit down no matter what and be comfortable. But when you have people who aren't, everything from how you in, email them and schedule them to how they when they show up how easy it was to find to the to the uh, hair and makeup to the dressing room to the food that you put out to all those things all of those things set up for a good interview it's not just the it's not just them talking it is how do they feel the entire time and does it and and can they see other people's eyes so we one of the things we do is we build a big shell around them so that they can't see anything but the person that they need to talk to whether if it's in we only want them to see that it's like a screen sticking out of Doobie, you know, like it's, it, it, you know, and, and so how do we keep them focused, but the entire environment, their entire experience from the time you ping them to um, finishing that, that interview is, is part of that experience that has them give you a great performance. And the the other thing is, is that um, always think about trying to use two cameras <laughs> because that that's that's how you cut around. So when you see a lot of weird things where people have close ups of their hands or they have an, a side shot, that's usually we're getting around something <laughs> you know, that, that that they that we you know we had to shorten that we had to pull it in. So having a multiple cameras or shooting at a real high resolution, and people hate that because you don't get the same depth of field. So if you do punch ins, you get the same depth of field that you had on the wide shot on the close up, which doesn't look natural. So Anytime you can, you want to get two cameras, one grabbing that close-up and the other one grabbing the wide um, or to to the side.
6: Courtney? And the opposite of all these suggestions uh, should be followed if the interviewee is a politician, because they will never answer a yes or no question. They will always evade, uh, because nobody wants to be pinned down on a topic because it will be held against them. So they will always be dancing around yes or no. Yes or no? Did you? Were you there? Did you? you know, they will never answer directly. Mitchell,
1: <laughs> um, Dealing with a CEO that um, he's not going to show his nervousness, he's going to bottle it up because that's what they do. I always lean into him and say, look, when I edit this, I'm going to make you look like a genius. So have at it. Works Nigel. every time.
7: <laughs> yeah, I, I've learned that I can not answer any question you ask me using one of six techniques. And if I feel that you are being hostile, I will deploy all six techniques and I will time you out. So, you know, think about how you ask your questions if you want something out of me, because I cannot answer them in very effective ways. Alex? I was
3: listening to Nigel and I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> I remember the the most controversial question
0: of maybe all of interviewing was Barbara Walters asking that guy if you were a tree what kind of tree would you be asking that woman if you were a tree what kind of tree would you be and I didn't understand it for a long time I thought like everybody else it was just silly but I heard back from professional sources that she was frustrated because the guy or the woman I can't remember would not answer a question with anything other than a canned response So on the fly, she came up with this idea, I'm going to ask him something that there is no way there can possibly be a canned response to, to knock him or her out of this canned response thing. So literally everybody at the highest level and the lowest level faces this thing of what do you do if things are falling apart? How do you break the expectations of everybody And reset, and so I had a few techniques to that. Maybe we'll talk about them later. But I think everybody who does interviewing has to figure out you're you're riding the horse, and and you got to figure out is it going too fast, too slow, and how do you change it? And
3: and and the one the one thing I will say is that the era of gotcha gotcha interviews is probably over. You know, like we're we're we maybe have the last five years of any kind of gotcha interviews because. Essentially, as someone who works for the corporations, if you pull a curve on somebody, will you'll just never get invited back because they don't need you anymore. <laughs> you know, like you know, like they're you know they're we're in a we're in a moment where the the corporations and the politicians are building their own platforms for for communication, and unless I mean, even if you're a, a really large one, they just don't need you in the same way that they needed you before. And so you know, hammering them. There's other ways to get that information, but trying to corner them. Uh, it just means you're not gonna get invited back. And so so I think that that's the, and, and I think that we're seeing more of that. And so, you know, the, uh, I, it, it's just a hard business to be in. I'm not saying you, one way or another, or whether it should be some other way. I'm just saying that the way it is now is that, you know, we get signals when we come out of events, like mm, <laughs> like, like, like this mean, from a, from a CEO that comes out means that person will never speak to that CEO again. Like you know, like like if they just come out and just do this like like little thing like this, that that's, they're they're done, you know, and um and they don't say anything, they don't make any directives. There's no emails, there's no texts, you know, like it's just like you just know very quickly, like no, nope, that that didn't go well. So and that's um, part so,
0: of why we're getting all this media silos, right? I won't, yeah,
3: yeah So be on I'm just saying, saying these twenty
0: five outlets. I'll only be on these twenty five outlets.
3: I don't have I don't have an answer for it. I just have a that I'm just stating that that's that's where it's going.
0: Yeah, there's another interesting thing I've seen. Uh, You get a politician or somebody else coming on and whichever side of it doesn't matter. Um, There will be something in the news that is very negative for them. And so the interviewer is trying to figure out how do I bring up this thing that's in the news? It's a big deal right now. But is, you know, and so watching that dance happen is interesting.
3: and the last thing i will say is the folks that are able to handle those curves and powerfully are those are usually the the most powerful parts of the interview you know we uh, had the opportunity to work with barack obama uh, a couple times and always in the middle of the show someone would throw some horrible curve at him and he just would knock it out of the park <laughs> he would just just you know and, and and he would just you know there was nothing that you could do to fluster him he would just answer the question um, and and just and, and keep it going and it was an it was an amazing skill uh, to, to see is just someone who will take on any question that comes up and answer it. But that takes an enormous amount of practice
0: and I think courage of convictions to a certain degree. I've seen politicians who are wishy washy and will go in yeah. any direction and they don't know where to go because they right. haven't decided what their position is. If mm-hmm. a politician on the right or left does know their position it's harder to do that to them. I think that's fascinating. Uh, Let's go on to the next question. we got a lot of things coming in here and uh, hopefully we can get to as many as we possibly can. Next question. From Morgan
1: Price in Victoria, British uh, Columbia, Canada. What are your tips and suggestions or stories for how you have drawn out specific stories and interviews versus just fact-based
3: answers? Alex, this comes back to the interview. You want to figure out what they're passionate about and you got to get into that early, you know, it's, you know, so um, rather than asking them hard questions at the beginning, find out things that they're passionate about and get them talking about that stuff, get them talking about things. And you may not need that right now, um, but but starting off with easy stuff that they're excited about definitely um, kind of moves things forward. Courtney. Yeah, on talk shows,
6: there's a pre interview because they're they will put an assistant or, or someone in charge of pre-interviewing the guest to find out what they want to talk about, what they're interested in, if they have any interesting anecdotes or any fun stories that happened in the last movie they were on, or etc. And then those topics are fed to the interviewer so that they know they to lead the person into something that they want to talk about. And you'll get a much more interesting response. It makes it kind of canned and there can become talking points. and. Uh, you know, repetitive anecdotes that you'll hear on multiple, you know, talk shows. But uh, as long as they have something new, if they're working on something new, you can get a lot of more uh, diverse
3: answers that way.
0: Alex, another follow up real quick?
3: Yeah, the uh, your talent will often give you a list of things they don't want to talk about. Uh, if you're going to ask those, ask them right at the end. Because if you ask them at the beginning, they'll be somewhere between. You now won't get very many good answers, or they may just stand up and walk away. I mean, we've definitely worked. We've worked with people who you ask the question that was clearly told to the interviewer not to ask, and then they they open it with that question, and the person just takes off the mic and leaves, <laughs> you know, because you know, and so so that that and, and we're done, <laughs> you know, and so uh, so you have to if you're going to ask those questions, you know. There's some reasons to ask those questions, but if you're going to ask them,
7: just wait till the end. Nigel, you had a thought? And also, don't ask them questions you know they're not going to answer. So, you know, if you're interviewing with a business person and and, uh, you say, well, so tell me about your share price, they're not going to tell you anything useful. They're not going to be allowed to tell you anything. So you're just going to annoy them and not get anything valuable.
0: Yeah, I also want to say that because I had those circumstances where I'd have to go in and do 15 or 20% a day, you don't always get the uh, advantage of a one-on-one interview where you can pre-research. And there were a couple of techniques I used. uh, At the beginning, as they were setting lighting for me, I would sit down, make eye contact, say, we're just going to get some audio levels, so let's talk a little bit. And I'd try to ask them a benign personal question, uh, something like, how long have you lived in the area? Or uh, do you have any pets or something like that? I'd try to find something that was appropriate to the to the level of interview we were doing. But even if it wasn't there, I would try to find that little icebreaker that they knew their answers to that for sure. I mean, you know, uh, do you live in the area or are you in from out of town? And they know the answer to that. And it's purely to get them talking. And then if I could go into something like, oh, tell me about your family, that puts them in a little more emotional space rather than just the cold interview. And over the first five to seven minutes of just setup time, you can often get them relaxed by letting them know that, that this is gonna be this conversation human to human, rather than talking about the subject at hand as the very first thing you do. Just a thought. Let's go on to the next question. Next question from Andy
1: Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. How do you approach potential interview subjects for your
3: show, Alex? One thing that helps is to do a lot of interviews and to do a lot of things in media. You want to have something that they can see. You know, they they want to know what you're going to be like and how you're going to do it. And so you may you may have someone who's higher. Uh, stature than other folks you want to do some so people can see what it's going to look like and how it's going to because either they or someone on their on their own you know and and you'd be surprised at how many people will say yes once you have some track record um but at the beginning you're going to probably find who who you can get um but you gotta yeah, and you want to practice anyway <laughs> but if you're if you're already good at it they just they want to see a track record you want to send them here are some examples of our show and that's what i do for this when we bring people on either people here know somebody or I will reach out to them and go here's a list and I send them a link with timed areas to see what they can if they just click on it they're gonna they can scan around but I want them to see what I'm trying to tell them uh, this is what it's gonna look like and uh, we've been pretty successful.
0: Yeah that's really good so is um, for me just referrals which is uh, my first email to them I was talking with insert name here of somebody that they will know. And he said, you'd be a really good subject for this thing. I'm doing a little piece about this and try to outline what it is. Would you be willing to talk to me? And the fact that they have somebody they can contact who will hopefully say, yeah, Bill's not an idiot and he will not mess this up. So yeah, go ahead and talk to him. And then that's enough to get your foot in the door. So contacts are really helpful there.
1: Next question. Jack Cannon from Phoenix, Arizona, asked when I interview people, they're often hostile since they did not volunteer to be interviewed. What's your favorite approach to putting an interviewee at ease? I often use food and drink to help it along.
0: <laughs> no one mentioned alcohol.
3: Alex, go ahead. and just <laughs> Flattery will get you everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, talking about how great whatever they're doing is or how interesting it is. I was thinking about the thing that I'd forgotten earlier was we have this DP or a director at a DP. I might have mentioned this in the past, but he would walk up and he could authentically just go. He'd walk up to the person that's, that there's an interview and, and just go, you are. So much, you know, more attractive than than you were in the pictures. Like in the research that I got, you know, like wow, look at you, you know. And 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 he would say it in such a great way. And and the first time he did it, I was like, wow, he was really impressed. And at the eighteenth time I saw it, I realized that was his shtick. You know that that he would tell someone that, and they'd be like, mm, no, thank you, you know. And 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 it, but flattery of, of what they're doing, you know, a lot. You are what you're doing is very interesting. Uh, you look good, you know, all those things potentially altogether, um, help a lot. And the food and drink doesn't hurt, just not too much drink.
6: Uh, Courtney. I find leaving a little trail of M&Ms up to the microphone really <laughs> helps. Now, with food, if uh, the people you're interviewing, uh, Jack, uh, don't want to be interviewed, it's considered an ambush interview and or a hostile interview. And that will always treat you with some degree of hostility if you're Trying to interview them without their permission or without them knowing that they're going to be interviewed. So maybe uh, uh, do a little legwork and uh, contact the person before you shove a mic in their face and ask them if they want to be interviewed before you start asking questions.
3: Alex, I'm guessing Jack is just doing it on site and he's finding people that are at somewhere to interview them. I'm guessing that's that's the situation. But but the. Um, uh, the other thing to do is I lay a lot of seeds around, you know, I talk about this is what I do and this is how I do it. And, and, you know, we interview people and we talk about them and people that are interesting. I throw out a couple of names of things that we've done in the past. It may seem very casual, but I do it pretty purposefully and, and I'm, I'm hoping that they jump onto that and just say, hey, I, I got some stuff I, I can talk about. You know, in a best case scenario, if you if you get good at that, that version of fishing, um, it, they're much more open to things because they came up with the idea.
0: There's also another thing for me. I think of it as interview theater. Uh, I can't tell you the number of interviews that, after the first answer from them, I go, "Oh my God, this is going to be so easy. That was perfect. You look great. You sound great. All you're really doing is spinning a little environment around this interview where they feel comfortable, they feel uh, acknowledged, and you know, you as the professional are giving them this. You've done really well this first time, Uh, unless it's a total disaster the first time. And then you just go, hey, that's no problem. Let's check the camera real quick. Oh, man, this shot looks fabulous. You're really making them look great. Again, you're you're trying to take them out of the emotion of fear or concern or how do I look? You're trying to get them out of your head and into the space. So all the positivity you can bring to that environment really does help um, if you want a positive interview out of it. Let's go on to the next question. Ryan Carney from Wheaton,
1: Illinois, I once was asked to interview someone else that didn't speak my native language, and I did not have access to a translator on set. How would you approach that situation? Mitch, take it away for a beginning. I would reschedule. There's just no way you're going to be able to manage that interview properly. Uh, Just doesn't seem to, I mean, apparently something went wrong. And uh, just like not having a cameraman there, um, it's a
0: no go.
3: Alex, do you have any thoughts? We, we've we've had that situation a couple of times um and the way we did it uh we didn't try to say it but we used google translate and <laughs> we literally typed the questions in and just pointed them at them because it was a, it was for a testimonial so we were able to ask the questions with google translate um and have them and it was good enough for them to answer those questions we had no idea what they said until we got back and the situation was is that we were in another country we were there the, the translator was sick you know and we didn't you know like it's not that we didn't plan it that way but you know we can't stay you know like it was it was like we're here for that day and it needed we needed to get the the what we needed to get out of it um in in the past we did those without internet once we had internet it didn't matter because we would bring people in and what what i would have done now is bring in on a phone call you know like that you know find somebody that that's there um but we have only had to do it a couple times um twice <laughs> and it was just a very uh we had enough internet for for we didn't have enough internet for video we just had enough internet for uh google translate um and it was in the middle of nowhere I was on a phone and it we got what we needed but again i would i would bring somebody in remotely if i did it again
0: yeah I was gonna, interviews are mostly a conversation and if but but e- either a party doesn't understand
3: it you don't need a translator you just remember that you don't need a translator to be in the room with you anymore. I mean, if you have internet, if you have a phone, you can get on a call and you can say what you need to say and have them say through it. So there's, you know, you just it's not, you know, you may not have the interviewer there, um, but but you should be able to find somebody online that can that can do it for you.
1: Uh, let's go to the next question. Robert Choji from Los Angeles, California. What techniques do you use to make the interviewee comfortable?
6: Courtney's going to start us. Well, it used to be small talk, you know, you could approach someone and, you know, ask them how they are, how their family is, you know, what they've been up to, et cetera. Get some small talk out of the way. However, lately, because of social media and because everyone has a phone that's recording stuff, people are very afraid to talk about anything personal or private. Uh, pre-interview where they think they aren't on camera because they might be on camera. And how many times do you tune in the news and see some segment on captured on a hot mic, you know, that that people's careers can be ruined just with casual comments made before an interview starts. So that that becomes harder and harder to make people comfortable uh, because they're so paranoid of saying something that they shouldn't in an area that can be captured on audio or video. Mitch?
1: I, I think the uh, most important thing is to find some kind of common interest uh, before you get into the uh, the main part of the interview.
0: If you do that, you make a connection and that connection is so very important as you move forward. I agree with that. and interestingly enough, I find with young people because they've had cameras on them since they were twelve or five or three whatever you know because everybody has cameras at homes, sometimes uh, young professionals are as uh, much smoother at this stuff than you would ever expect. And you probably find out that they have a podcast at home that they're doing. Uh, And that's why they're much better at it than I would have expected. Alex, you had another thought? Just
3: get them laughing. (laughs) Usually, you you can get them, just be careful of telling the wrong jokes. You know, you have to really be thinking about what they are. It's not really jokes that you want to tell. It's being fun, is, you know, just being fun. You, You know, telling jokes is usually a great way to get yourself in trouble, but being fun and just having people have a good time uh, makes a difference. The the one thing to be careful of is a lot of times you get a better shot before the interview. We did a we did a, a show with Julia Gillard who was the she was the Prime Minister of Australia I think in the early in the early tens and. Uh, The pre-show was so funny like she is so funny and then she got and i was like i don't know why everyone said she was so square and then as soon as we turned the cameras on it was like over (laughs) like it was it was flat you know but it was before the show we were joking about her dogs and the planes and things and it was it was great it was i was like i wish that would have been the interview but it was not
0: yeah i have to say one of my biggest successes in my corporate career was when i went to visit one of my ongoing clients and the the senior vice president I was pulling in said, come on, we got to go in my office. And I, said, well, and I said, OK, fine. We went in. He closed the door. He said, I got a little complaint last time we were laughing so much that every we disturbed everybody. And I thought, wow, that says something. If if we can create that light hearted environment for the person who's having to get this work done and wants to wants to get it done, and if they feel good enough with us to joke around and laugh, that means that they've assessed us and we're doing OK for them. Uh, John, you had another thought, John Prato? So I'm interested to hear the panel's opinion on this. I follow what James Lipton does in his interviews, uh, and I ask a canned set of questions, but it gives a good introspection of, of their character. Are you a hot dog or hamburger person? Are you a cat or dog person? Are you a Mac or PC person? And then it's interesting to compare and com- con- contrast the people on my podcast from answer to answer. I don't I don't know what the panel thinks about that. Uh, I don't know if that, somebody has their hand raised. I just lost a screen for a minute, so uh, Alex,
3: go ahead. I, I, I didn't raise my hand, but I was just going to say I, I think that um, I, I've often thought it'd be fun to drive, drive, around, go all over the world with twenty twenty questions that are the same. Just call it twenty questions, and, and they're the same twenty questions. I'm never going to vary it. I'll give you time to think about it, <laughs> you know, and I'm going to send you what they are, and 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 then I'm going to ask those twenty questions. And I think that. You've got a, coming up with the right 20 is is the thing. But I think that you could learn a lot and it gives you a reference point of every person connected to each other. I, I've thought about that for, I don't know, 25 years, just never gotten around to doing it.
0: Doesn't so, somebody so. doesn't, Vanity Fair or something like that, do that with celebrities. Man. They have that, that list of questions. Interesting. Uh, Nigel, you had a last thought before
7: you I always end uh, my podcast with guests with the same three questions uh, that, you know, wrap it up. You know, what's your favorite? technology, home technology, you know, just things that that sort of feel a way to bring the interview to a halt, which is the same thing that Lipton did.
1: Absolutely. All right. Next question. Roscoe Jones, Madison, Indiana. What are your best tips for editing a two-person versus a multi-person interview? Do you ever use cutaways? Alex? use cutaways all the time,
3: (laughs) like cutaways and B roll or your friend. So, um, you know, we try to get as much as we, uh, one of the things that uh, uh, on higher end productions that we do, uh, we'll have the two We'll have the two main cameras on them. Oftentimes, we'll have another set of cameras that are the over-the-shoulder shots. Then we'll have a wide camera that's up and wide that shows you the frame. And then we have someone that's just wandering around capturing close-ups of hands and feet and and other things like that. And and so it's a, it's it's quite a production. We try to keep most of that stuff in because we're not. Moving it very much because I don't like a lot of people in the room. Those are all usually PTZs. I don't have operators doing those because it's not because of the money. It's because I I don't want them to be a distraction. Once you sit down for a little while, and if the PTZs aren't doing very much, you just stop paying attention to them, and they're just they're just part of the. And so, um, so oftentimes we'll have four or five cameras uh, there doing that stuff. Those close-ups save us a lot. And then what we do before the show or during it, we'll walk through with them. We'll capture close-ups. We the big thing with B roll is just don't show anybody's face <laughs> because if they're talking, um, then then it's something it, it gets weird. So, but oftentimes we'll come behind them, we'll uh, you know capture a lot, and we'll capture as much as we have time to capture um, because it saves you so many times to be able to cut away. Yeah,
0: uh, let's go to Courtney.
3: Yeah, I agree with Alex. And even if you
6: only have one camera to cover an interview, uh, you can do after the interview's over, you can ask the person to stay there for a second and just move the camera over their shoulder to look back at the interviewer where he does some nods and uh, pensive, thoughtful looks. Uh, And those cutaways can get you out of trouble over and over again. Uh, Or, like Alex says, shot of the hands just for B-roll, anything other than their face or just the person looking and listening so that when the interviewer is asking the question, uh, you can cut to that person, cut back and forth between the person listening to the question and the interviewer. And you can have the interviewer uh, be off camera for the actual interview with the person. Then after that person leaves, you can move the camera over and shoot all of your questions over again with the interviewer on camera and uh, cut them all together and people will never know that they were done at different times
1: mitchell love a jib camera gets that pov shot that looks so cool in fact there's a new show over at cnn right now with uh, three anchors and every shot is moving every single one of them a little too much uh next question next question for robert shoji in los angeles again what two camera angles are recommended for an
0: interview
3: alex you want to take this yeah, I mean, usually what you don't wanna do is see a jump cut I mean, in YouTube we jump cut all the time, but, but generally um, what you wanna see is if you have a person here, you wanna, one is gonna be typically as straight on as possible, might be a little off if you have an interviewer, um, but it's that straight on shot that you get there. And then typically and the next one will either be much closer, and near that camera or over to the side in more of a profile um, shot. And they're both on the same side, <laughs> line of direction. So they're both on the same side of the person or it gets confusing. Um, but those are the typically the ones that that we use here. And sometimes we put these on a, what's called a one man uh, uh, slide. It's a slider that goes back and forth by Red Rock Micro. And so that you get a little bit of movement on it as well um, to do that. And so when we cut to it, it gives it a little bit of dynamism. Dynamism? Dynamism? Yeah.
0: <laughs> Mitch.
1: Uh, there's a uh, a famous pennsylvania <clears throat> candidate that's running who recently had a stroke and um the the way they put together uh spots because he can't do a full sentence or he might not be able to do a full sentence is they shot it in a studio um and they did a lot of jump cuts but they showed the studio props as part of the scene for the jump shots, so that interest that it was a studio added enough of a, an attitude, I guess, to it that allowed it to make it make
6: sense. Courtney? And remember, if you're shooting, uh, if your target uh, resolution is 1080p, shoot in 4K if you can, because then you can extract a much closer close-up and get you out of trouble uh, That and to keep it that from looking like a jump cut if you're gonna cut something out. You can cut into a tighter version from the same camera uh, and extract material that they spoke in between those two and it would not look as much like a jump cut uh, if you
3: can extract one. Alex? Careful of not showing their hands in both both angles because <laughs> then you have to match them. So, so, so those closer ones should be close enough to get past that.
0: Yeah, there's a whole bunch of things about cutaways that can be a little bit iffy if you're not, you know, you think I've got it, and then you find out, oh, wait, his arms were up, and I'm cutting to his hands, and that just doesn't make mm-hmm. any sense at all. I'll take people right out of things. The other thing is that, you know, this new um, shooting way we have, when I've been doing these Final Cut things, so I've got a camera uh, that's that's on me, and I've got the zoom, uh, my my presentation, my Final Cut interface up there. It's been interesting to me that I didn't accept jump cuts at all uh, in my early days. But because I understand now that when you're recording in a circumstance like that, if I don't have something on my screen, they can see they're going to have to stop or they're going to have to just see me. And to me, a radio edit where the conversation flows, even if I did a... And or lick my lips or something. If it's distracting, I want to get that out of there. And so I'm relieved that, that the MTV style for now the last 30 years has said jump cuts aren't the biggest sin in the world because sometimes keeping the conversation, the, the exposition flowing is more important than that little glitch uh, right now. It's serving your audience the best you can. Next question.
1: Next question from Eric Billings in Washington D.C. When Leo addressed Alex during the Gray Matter interview, did that break convention in a good way, engagement, or a bad way? Fourth wall.
3: Alex, what's your thought? I, I think it was fine. I think I think, it, I think it, it, it it did break. I didn't encouraged it Um, you know it was definitely like oh I don't I'm not you could kind of hear me in the background there Um, but I think Leo and Leo can get away with that (laughs) so but and um, but but I think that I you know it was definitely not something that I that I had planned to have happen and again that's the mistake of me not having you know like me having being in the same room as best you can I think it was fun because we all know each other and Leo and I have known each other for almost 20 years or 20 years now. Um, and so I think it, it was fun for that specific interview, but it definitely had me think about whether I want to be in the same room with the interviewers in the future, which, or at least put up some kind of soft wall between me and them. So that, um, with Leo, it worked with other people. i probably try to avoid it.
1: Next question. Next question in from, uh, Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira,
3: Florida. Where do you find interview subjects? Alex, real quick. Define the subject and find people that are doing it great. Great, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that are doing that. Uh, you'd be surprised at how many people are willing to be interviewed. Um, and so, you know, to talk, to talk about those things. So, uh, but but you wanna find the subject that you have and then find people that are passionate and smart about it and uh, start small and uh, get good at it. And uh, and then that builds your track record. And then you can build up to um, folks that are more and more, have more and more stature. You'd be surprised at who you can get to say yes if you, if you have a track record, Cordy Gooden. YouTube,
6: because people who have their own channel on YouTube want to be interviewed, they want they want to be exposed. They're there for a reason. And so they make good interview subject.
0: And I was just going to say, if you want to create content that is based on interviews, that's part of the skill set you have to learn how to reach out to people. You cannot be super shy. You have to, you know, get your ducks in a row, get an example of what you're trying to do, learn how to explain it concisely. But then you've just got to take the step and make the phone call or the email or the contact. You know, you're either going to get up and do this or you're not, and that's that's a, a brick wall determinant of whether somebody's going to have success in this part of things. Uh, oh, Alex, you had another know, thing?
3: All I was going to say is that a lot of things you'll look at are, are tips, but there are some basic things that you want to pay attention to, and one is building up a following building up people that you know that is that's that's not hunting and gathering that's farming <laughs> you know and so you know when you start on something like twitter you know i i have a, a small but reasonable number of followers on twitter which means that if i ping somebody on twitter they're they're much more likely to respond to me than than if i had six followers and so when you think about all of those um, uh, you know all of the things that you do you know you, a lot of people think about oh, I don't want to do any of that stuff. And then they suddenly need that. <laughs> That's not something you can just create. Like that is something that you do over years. Um, and, and so you want to um, be really thinking about that. That's like, you know, whether it's being on this panel or doing a YouTube channel or doing a, uh, you know, doing things that are useful on Twitter, all those things build that up. And you need to start today if you're going to use it two or three years from now, it's like growing an apple tree, not like going out and trying to find some berries in the woods.
0: So we have three more, and we have about that many minutes, so let's dive in. Next question.
1: Douglas Carmichael asking, how do you make talent comfortable during the mic framing check process if they're not technically savvy? Mitch, take it. Try not to have them in the room at the same time. Use a stand-in. Of course, for micing, you have to get them. But what I usually do is, uh, if it's multiple interviews that we're doing, I'll have one of our producers in another room prepping that talent before they even come in and that puts them sort of at ease of what's going on but um yeah just try to keep them distracted tell them a story talk to okay. them Alex, Don't-
0: can you uh do something quick
3: i just ask them how they're doing <laughs> how's, how's it going go. how, what did you do this morning and that's usually just get them talking while i'm working on the other stuff because i want them to talk you know because i need yeah. to check mics and framing
1: there you go next question Arshid Trivedi from Daytona Beach, Florida, on the upcoming Friday episode of Grey Matter, the name of the guest seems familiar to me. Was this the writer of Bosch? What type of questions will you ask for the interview?
7: Nigel. I'm absolutely crushed. I can't listen live. I would have a thousand questions. He is without doubt my favorite author. I would buy one of his books the moment it came out. In fact, I always do. He did write Bosch and a number of other characters. Only one of them has never worked. Um, I have to tell you the great joy in my life is when I'm reading a Bosch book and one of the other characters from one of the other series wanders into the storyline, be that the Lincoln lawyer or somebody else. And as they weave their way, it's great.
3: Alex, real quick. Yeah, the uh, you remember, not, we were going to open Makana today, Nigel, so you don't have to be there to ask the questions.
0: Oh, there you go. Yeah, there you go. Michael Connelly is a fine writer, fabulous career over many decades. This will be exciting. Uh, next question, last question. Last question in from Douglas
1: Carmichael. Have you ever had to deal with talent that requested your interview questions in advance to
3: prepare? And Alex. Yeah, 100%. And we, if we have them, we send them to them, or we'll send an example of these are the ones that we're going to start off with. Um, it, there's no reason to, I, I, I mean, like I get, I'm not an investigative reporter, so I, I don't really, you know, I'm not, that's not the, the game I'm trying to play. Um, so so I, I, I find that letting them be comfortable and thinking
7: through it, it makes sense and Nigel. 100% but I always say to them I can't promise I'm going to ask them word for word the way they're written down but these will be the themes that we will explore.
0: Excellent. So I have done a bad thing which is not pull up the notes for the show close here because I was so engaged in it but I know that we've got exciting things happening. Can somebody remind me who the next guest is for tomorrow?
3: Do we know who's coming in uh, tomorrow. We tomorrow is, uh, is is ruthless reviews of our of our video. We had audio last time. We have video this time, and also remember that today, right after the show, Elle will be talking about Isadora. So, um, so stay tuned for that in after hours.
0: Excellent. Thank you all for being here. Thanks to the panelists for doing a fabulous job of answering questions. I hope you guys enjoyed this as much as I did to everybody in the audience. Uh, we had some fabulous discussions of what this is all about. Uh, don't forget, After Hours happens right after that, uh, after this. And so if you're going to Elle's presentation, uh, you can head that direction. We're on 24-7 and After Hours. And thank you for listening to After Hours today. Uh, you're going to see us credit roll here at the end. These are all the people in the back end who are helping us put this show on, and they all. deserve uh, notoriety and praise. So uh, let's roll the credits and thank you all for being here. 24 hours. Makes me want to do interviews now. Whoops, you're muted, Alex. I know you're whispering. I can hear you. I can see you whispering.
3: I'm not, I'm not muted. I am private, excellent whisperer. Yes, Rain Alex.
0: This floor is indistinguishable from silence. <laughs> we have you to go to to back stop. and capture that ASMR close. We did. <laughs> that was the best whisper. Of me. Yes, absolutely.
6: Thanks everybody for being here. This is great. ball bye.